Welcome to episode 146 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Hey, Jason, how you doing? Doing well. How you doing? Doing very good. Was just uh, watching a movie that um, Riyad Carla. You remember Riyad Carla suggested that I watch that other movie about juicing? Right, I do. Yeah. So he has he, he's single-handedly trying to save my life. He suggested another movie that I watch called Forks Over Knives. Well, I'm trying to save your life too, but you ignore all my advice. So. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. That Forks Over Knives movie is very, very interesting. Very cool. And I, I use the interesting word, but really this time it really is. What is it about exactly? It does for healthy diet what Richard Dolan does for UFOs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like basically, he comes up with reams of uh, government uh, documents for the- hardcore evidence. Just okay. just evidence that you can't deny that points to okay, this is a truth. You know, like Richard Dolan has so much hardcore evidence about like UFOs. Leslie Kane. Yeah. So that, you know, all the evidence that they come up with is evidence that's been discussed by government officials, official documents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, mm-hmm. That kind of it seems like, wow, that's pretty hardcore evidence about UFOs, right? So, okay. this, so this movie is, um, the thesis is to show the correlation between eating any kind of animal products, meat, dairy, or eggs, and getting cancer, stroke, or heart disease. And right. the correlation is huge. Can't imagine anyone watching this movie and not being like, wow, that's something I need to consider and think about. What's the name of the movie again? Um, Forksoverknives.com. Fox, Fox as in like F-O-X? Forks as in F-O-R-K-S. Oh, okay. So right. it's, just, it's basically saying use a fork over a knife to cut, you know, fork to, to spike your vegetable versus a knife to cut your meat. Okay. Uh, but I mean, I can't really do the movie justice because there's so many facts and statistics shown, but um, here's a few. Do you, are you interested in hearing a couple of? Let's hear things? it. Okay. Mm-hmm. They, showed, they showed a graph uh, from a study of Norway from 1940 to 1950, and the graph showed an ever, you know, amongst the population, an ever-rising rate of cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. But then the Nazis occupied Norway in World War II, at which point they took away all animal livestock from the, the population of Norway, and they piped it all to the Nazi troops. So during that time, during that op- occupation, people of Norway had to switch to a purely plant-based diet. And <laughs> Probably some fish, though, right? I, d- I, I don't think so. I think just, just basically really plant-based was what they were living off. They were living off okay. vegetables, basically. And it's unbelievable. The rates of cancer, heart disease, and diabetes almost disappeared for like that, that period of occupation. And then right. as, as soon as um, everything, the war was over and everything was handed back, the rates of those diseases went straight back up. Right. Um, but something, an even bigger uh, piece of evidence, and, and there's, there's so many in this movie, it's just amazing, but an, an even bigger is in China in 1973... Um, the emperor at the time got liver cancer. And um, one of his last wishes was to really, for his country to get into studying about cancer, what, what the deal was. So he commissioned a pretty large study of the whole of China for like a five-year period to basically see um, what type of people in China get it and what people don't. So they did a very detailed study with over 60,000 statisticians. Um, Statistics. Stat- well, st- Statistics, do you call people... Sta- Are you stat- about statisticians or 60,000? Stat- statisticians, yeah. 60,000 statisticians, right? So they, they basically plotted all the instances of all the different cancers in China over a five-year period and put, put flags on a map for all the different cancers. And it was, it was amazing that... I mean, we're talking millions and millions of people in China, right? You know how many people there are in China. But the flags on the map, it was unbelievable to see that 99% of the disease was in areas where they ate animal products. 
In the other areas of China where they ate a plant-based diet with barely any animal products, the disease rates were almost zero. Hmm. Of, across millions and millions of people over, over this five-year period. Um, now, was there a threshold? Did they talk anything about that? Like if you eat less than a certain amount of meat per week or month or a, a of a certain type, if it's just fish or chicken versus, say, eating red meat, is there anything like that? Okay, there, there, there was a few studies that showed, that showed there was a threshold, actually. And the studies that they presented in there were studies on mice. And basically, they showed that if you eat, and, and we're including fish and chicken, like basically that's included in the meat, dairy, and eggs that you shouldn't eat. And they showed that with, with the mice, if they ate less than 5% of basically meat, dairy, or eggs, that their cancer would basically pull back and reduce and go down. And if they ate... 20%, they basically, they, they had a scenario where they had 5% of their diet versus 20% of their diet. And every time they went up to 20%, cancer got switched on. They started uh, getting cancer and cancer cells started uh, replicating. And every time they went down to 5%, the cancer cells started shrinking. So it's like, the, it's basically animal proteins like casein um, just triggers cancer. <laughs> but not, not just right, well, what i'd like to know is I, i'd like to see if there's been any modern medical um research you know peer-reviewed research on this subject because you know you come up with these movies about stuff and they can be very convincing but they may not be uh i don't know they may not be the kind of thinking that would hold up to uh academic well that that was the great thing about the movie because it contained exactly that there was um the, it, it wasn't just one person's point of view it profiled a number of phds and scientific studies and um the the kind of main two phds that showed these two guys who were phd guys who both of them coincidentally were born on farms and were kind of born to farming parents who farmed cattle and then over their career they're both about 70 now over their career they both rose really high in the ranks and then they basically uh, of the scientific uh, community and gradually came to this same realization that that a plant-based diet right. is, is amazing for you um, but also another thing is um, the idea that we, we've got to eat a large amount of protein to build muscle and be healthy really does seem to be a lie you know and the I don't know about that I mean I don't know I mean I'd be, I'd be interested to hear some see some real evidence on that because okay go on you should, you should check the movie out and, and that's kind of one reason why I would really like you to watch it because um, plants I think I said in a previous episode that, I, that I'd read in a few places that plants contain enough protein for healthy body function and that we are you know in the um, in the West we're told to eat way more protein than we actually should and as a result it kind of fucks us up and this I don't think people are told I think people just do because they like the taste of it I don't think anyone's well I don't know I guess you, I guess the USDA has some sort of recommendation for meat. Do you, remember, do you remember that one time when we were talking about it and you said, no, no, you, you know, to bulk up, you need to eat, you know, like meat, you need to eat protein, right? Well, in, in, in the documentary, they showed a number of people who were very buff, who lived off like 100% plant-based diet. There was a, one UFC fighter who makes you look like a little guy. I mean, this guy is ripped and he's mm. huge with massive muscles and he eats just plant-based diet. Plus also, they had a team of firefighters, right? This is another interesting thing. They had a team of firefighters who took a bet like one night they're out drinking, they took a bet to see who had the lowest cholesterol. And they went for tests, and one of them had cholesterol of 340, right? Massive. So they decided, they decided to go on a plant-based diet. And they all got incredibly healthy and cut. And they've even put a website out about it called engine2diet.com. So that's E-N-G-I-N-E-2, the number two, diet.com. 
And on that, they've got a great FAQ that talks about the fact that this, you know, the protein myth and like how, how actually you can, you can reduce your protein intake and still build muscles. And these, these are firefighters. I mean, you know, they, they need to, okay. they need right, to be pretty right. healthy, but anyway, anyway, I'm going on a bit, but yeah, I, I'd, I think I'd like to see, I'd like to, uh, you know, see some, I, I, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is take a look at the studies that were, uh, referenced in the movie and see what they say and see what, if you know, what level of, uh, peer review they've received because some of that stuff doesn't sound right to me. I mean, I, you know, we're essentially omnivores. I mean, I think that there are certain things that are lacking in a pure uh, vegetarian diet or vegan diet um, that I know you have to, it can be difficult for the human body to sustain just that. I mean, you might, it might be true that your cholesterol and um, would, be, would be lower and it might be true that your weight will be lower and you might be less susceptible to uh, cancer and heart disease, but you might also have other problems. Um, and I'd be curious to find out a little more about it because I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, this is just anecdotal, but I, it seems like all the people that I knew who were, uh, who were sort of vegan or vegetarian were often very gaunt and kind of sickly. They're always getting colds and stuff. And I mean, that's just purely anecdotal. I mean, I don't have it. There's not anything scientific about that. Will but. you, will you, the movie's on Netflix. Will you do me the favor and watch it so we can maybe talk about it next show? Sure. I'll try. I don't know if I can do it by next show, but I'll, I'll see. I'll, I mean, in the next couple of weeks, I'll try and get a chance to read it. Okay. Do, uh, okay. Watch, so you know. yeah, it's called Forks Over Knives. Yeah. And, no, I got there. I'm looking okay. at the review of it right now. So. Riad Carla, thanks so much for, for sending that in. That was great. And I hope that I haven't bored our listeners too much with this information. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Next, tech. <laughs> oh, okay. So uh, you got my disease. Look at you go. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Um, well, all right. Um, let's see where we're going to go here. I know you've been pinging loads of links to me. And now what we've done is we've started on um, our texting Twitter account. We've started putting out those links with a hashtag of TZ topic do you say tz or tz tz i'd say tz but I okay guess tz I okay say tz all right so so if you if you want to um just monitor the, the twitter search of hash tz topic then you're going to see all our stuff and the cool thing is if as a listener you've got something that you'd like us to talk about just tweet with hash tz topic and then we'll we'll pick up on it we've already got a couple of people tweeting about that so i think we can incorporate some of that stuff into the show as well yeah, so, I mean, obviously, we won't talk about all these talk- topics because I just ping you anything that I'm considering yeah. bringing up the topic. I mean, I probably ping you anywhere from 20 to 30 links in a week. Yeah. So I might print out and read 50. I might ping you 20 to 30, and then we might actually talk about five or six in a show. It's great. It's become my new source of uh, the schedule queue for uh, Plugio. It's <laughs> <laughs> so your new filter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, okay, great. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, a lot of this stuff is sourced from Hacker News. Some of it's from other sites. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. Some are from Reddit and other places, but uh, I, I don't know. There, see, some stuff on Hacker News is, um, I guess, yeah, I guess it just comes down to taste. It isn't really stuff that I'd be that interested in. But um, obviously, there's a lot of great stuff on there, and, and it's pretty wide range. You know, it, it, it's, it comes to surprising because. It, sometimes it can get really technical and you'll have like a number of stories talking about uh, cloture, Scala, or, you know, uh, optimizing uh, compiler performance or something. And then you'll have something about, um, you know, the, the, the banker scandal and Federal Reserve stuff, you know, which I'm always surprised when I see things like that on there. So, All right. So, so what's your first uh, thing you'd like to talk about? Well, so we didn't really get to 
cover too many topics last show, and so I have a backlog of topics. Plus, I found a bunch this week that were good. Um, but the first one I'll bring up is one from uh, last week that uh, had queued up, which is um, about a Twitter, uh, a hedge fund that's you know actually trading off of a Twitter, Twitter sentiment analysis. Right. And and they only had one month of of results, meaning they did well. But it's based on an academic paper um, out of the University of Manchester uh, and Indiana University. And essentially what they do is they analyze a Twitter stream and they analyze 10% of available tweets. Now, I don't understand what they mean by 10% of available tweets. Maybe, I don't know, are there tweets that are private versus public on Twitter? I see. Yeah, yeah, there are, yeah. And I guess, maybe, may, I don't know, maybe if they may or may not have access to the full stream. I mean, can you have access to a limited stream? Is there like accounts for that? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, th- I think that you basically have public or private tweets, end of story. But I mean, you do, you don't have to pay to have the entire fire hose. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You do. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So that's so that maybe, must be what they meant. Yeah, maybe they just used uh, sort of a, a subset of those tweets. So what they did is they looked for um, changes in instances of words that were related to a calm mood, um, and that those could be used to predict the Dow's closing price. And that words like uh, alert, happy, and vital. And uh, basically, what they said is that that would lead the index from about two to six days so that when there was a lot of changes to, I guess, those, the occurrences of those words, then two to six later you'd see a, a corresponding jump in the, in the, in the, um, in the market indexes, the, like the Dow or the S&P index, S&P 500. Now, now that's making me go, yeah. <laughs> I, I really buy that. <laughs> well, be interesting. I, I haven't had a chance to uh, look at the, at the paper. I mean, I just read the, the article on the Atlantic Wire, which, you know, sort of summarized it. Um, and this, this Derwent Capital is the hedge fund that's trading using the strategy. I mean, they're also using the prices of gold and oil. And I mean, it, it, it doesn't that kind of thing seems like, seem like it could just fall into Texas shops. I mean, it could just be lucky that one month kind of thing. That's well. That's just uh, well. Yeah, I mean, one month would is, is essentially meaningless in returns. But um, the paper, I'm not sure how much of a history the the paper used that the academic paper. I mean, that could have been. I'm assuming that was probably at least a year or two of of data. But I guess it depends how long. How long has a Twitter stream been available? Well, what the firehose? Yeah, uh, it's been available for uh, I guess a year, maybe a year and a half. Yeah. So, and and even then, it's like if you're doing some historical analysis on it, unless you unless they've started the analysis right after the stream became available, then they had to somehow uh, have been getting some historical database of this data of this data. And yeah. I, I don't know. So I don't know. I, I'd have to look into it. But I thought that was kind of cool. And they said the accuracy was eighty-seven point six percent, which there is uh, just. To, I mean, talking about that data thing, there's a thing called datasift.com that basically. Give you acts, give give you an API to uh, Twitter's um, firehose and all that kind of stuff. So maybe they could be using that. And I'm, I think that data sift thing does go back historically. So yeah. So I don't, you know, a friend of mine, um, Kaz, who I've mentioned before, is 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 probably going to make a move into sort of a, the sort of I don't know big data data analysis realm. Don't say and, anything. You're not allowed to. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Okay. Uh, and. Uh, Anyway, so I was suggesting to him, I said, well, look, if you want to pivot into a career like that, because he's been in the trading industry and he's thinking maybe he should go more in the tech world. And there's a lot, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for people who have strong analytical backgrounds and can use that on doing deep data analysis. Yeah. And I thought, you know, what you could do is 
pick some project that's based on that of some publicly available data, do some interesting analysis on it, and write it up as a series of tutorials. The same thing I've mentioned a number of times on this show and in in, in various uh, contexts. But you know, you, whether you're using R or Python or MATLAB or whatever tools you are, but just say, okay, well, here's the project. This is my approach. Here's going to be a five-part series on how we're going to break this stuff down, get the data, clean it up, do these different types of analytics, different types of machine learning algorithms, and this is what we're going to learn from it. And that would demonstrate some real, a real facility with that and, and, and allow you to you know, maybe get some job opportunities, just how it's worked for a couple other people who I would advise to do that, uh, who I have it to, right? Yeah, basically putting yourself out there, those blog posts are very, very helpful in getting jobs. Yeah, and I thought, you know, this would be the perfect kind of thing is doing some, like, Twitter-based sentiment analysis. I mean, maybe for predicting the market, maybe for something else. But um, this is the kind of thing that would be kind of an interesting and fun project. And if you did the analysis out in the open and, you know, showed your chops by, you know, uh, bringing a lot of powerful tools to the, to the project, it would be, you know, I think that would really get it. That would really show that you'd be someone worth talking to, I would think. Yeah, sounds like so a good idea. So speaking of, uh, you know, data analysis and stuff, there's a, another topic is a couple weeks old, but we're still we're talking about it. It's kind of the, is, the title was The Cause of Riots and the Price of Food, which basically says that when food, the, there's, there's sort of this food price index that this New England complex systems group out of Cambridge mm-hmm. is working on, and that when this index gives a, or goes above a certain threshold, um, there's the world is, or the area that it happens in is rife for um, uh, turmoil, for social turmoil and revolution. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out that it, in, in, um, in a lot of parts of uh, North Africa and where these revolutions took place, the, uh, the price of food, the index, was, had spiked above those levels. And what it was saying is not that, that when, pri- when the price of food is usually not itself the cause of the revolution, but it sets the stage. Like, people are on edge. Mm, so it's like it creates the Petri dish where, where the kind of the match can then spark the, the madness. Exactly. So something else happens. You know, people are hungry. They're frustrated. You know, it's, it's one thing if there's a tough, you know, economic situation where people are out of work or whatever, and that, and that also can play into it. But when it gets to the point where people can't feed themselves... They can't eat the things they're used to eating. I think it just, it, it, I, I mean, I guess the, the, what they've discovered is that it changes, it deeply changes the mood. You know society. why I can believe this? Because when Georgie gets hungry, she, get, she gets in a bad mood. <laughs> I get in a bad mood too. <laughs> and if there, was, <laughs> if there was like a whole nation of people like that, I could, I could totally get it. Yeah. I mean, people do get pissed when they're, when they're hungry, don't they? They do, and um, I mean, you know, there are probably some people who are a little easier going about it. I know I get in a bad mood. I, I think I think more people than than not get irritable when they get hungry. And just imagine if you can't. Maybe it's that you. It's not always that you can't afford to eat, but you can't afford to eat the things that you're used to eating or expect to eat. Maybe it's whether it's rice or bread or certain types of meat or vegetables or something that is a staple to your diet. And now all of a sudden you can't afford it. Did you know that that um in uh, the Brazilian rainforest where, where they've cut away the land and the cattle that live there, they eat enough grain to feed 8 billion people. <laughs> well, okay. Say that again? I'm not sure I understand. Okay, so basically... So to, the area of land that they, that, they, that they... The cattle, basically the cattle from that area eat enough grain to feed 8 billion people 
on the planet. Yeah, I've read <laughs> that about how like the amount of food that it takes to feed uh, livestock. Yeah. You know, like cut out if you cut out um, cows, you cut if we like we stopped eating um, you know steaks and hamburgers and that kind of stuff. That the amount of energy and uh, that that would save is is huge. Yeah, the amount of energy and the amount of food, they, they would be... But we wouldn't even need to cut... I mean, we wouldn't even need to cut it completely. Just cut a fraction of it, and you could then, you know, feed everyone on the planet kind of thing. Yeah, I've heard it's things crazy. like that. Well, because uh, when you, we think of the amount of fertilizer that it takes to grow the, the grain that they're eating, the amount of petroleum that goes into that, the amount of methane that's caused yeah. that all those cow, that as a result of those cows living and uh I, I don't know it's extremely um i know it's extremely environmentally so what we're saying is if we basically all went off meat then there'd be no more riots <laughs> <laughs> i don't know about that i think i think i read something else the other day something like the the most most famines are not caused by droughts usually caused by um wars and uh, corruption hmm. um i don't have a specific reference to that i just read something like a couple days ago um so I don't know. I mean, yeah, but I think right. I mean, if if the Western cultures ate less red meat and and uh, ate more fish and chicken, and then and sort of you know dialed everything down a little bit, I'm sure that would make be easier on the overall uh, food system. But um, so they, I guess they said they said based on this that we've gotten to because currently the index is above the threshold, but the long term trend is below. But I, what, what these guys at the New England Complex Systems Institute are, are, are advising the government, because they wrote, a, I think they wrote like a letter to the government saying, look, this is a, this is a problem, that we've gotten until August of 2013 before the shit hits the fan. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was... All right. So you've got, you've got loads, of, loads and loads of links and possible stuff for us to discuss. So right. I guess I'm going to let you drive this show and pick what we're going to move through next. No, no, we don't have to drive. I, I, I just, I'll just kind of blow through a couple. We'll go through them a little quicker. Okay. See, last show, I felt, I felt like we kind of um, we got stuck on a couple topics a little too long. And, I, you know, if, it's fine if it's interesting, but if we get stuck on something for more than 10 minutes, which I think is the number, right? It's 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that was something I... I can't remember who said it, but it was on a Mixergy episode. I like five minutes. I like five. If we could switch topics every five minutes, I'd be a very happy camper. Five, I think five, five to ten. Ten on the up, on the, in the long side, but, you know, five is tight. Five okay. doesn't allow for any sort of... Uh, five doesn't allow for Jason to really express his ideas. Yeah, and I can't open up and, you know, I can't, uh, can't get... I can't even, you know, break into a full stride. Okay, go on. The next one. Let's, let, let's, let's just go through them. Let's r- rattle through them. da 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 for this show, right? All right. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, our oh, it was there's a topic on uh, motherjones.com called our our oil con- constrained future. Huh. And um, you never even sent that one to me. No, actually, I just got this one today from Cause, who I just was mentioning. All right. Um, so he was talking about he's he was talking because he's sort of changing careers from he's been in the trading world and he's sort of thinking maybe he wants to either go to Silicon Valley and get sort of in the data analytics. Um, space or maybe even the energy space because he's because that's going to be an uh, an ongoing big issue, and so that's why he sent me this article. And um, I guess what they're saying, one of the things that they, this guy's a, um, a professor of economics at UCSD, he says that um, loss of one, uh, yeah, okay, here it says an oil spike, an oil price spike of ten percent over its previous high produces a GDP decline of one point. Four percentage points one year later. Mm. 
Do that. Just a mere ten percent spike over previous high. Yeah. And that's a decline of one point one point four percent is huge. I mean, our GDP, you know, when I think our GDP this year, our growth is like one percent. I mean, it's kind of anemic. One. I mean, if you're if you're flat, then or are negative, obviously, then you're in a recession. But um, I think even when we were really cooking, it was like around two point five to three percent GDP. I think. Well, just just to uh, to butt in there, um, did you see the? In the Japanese invention of a wind lens. That okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're, you're totally switching, switching topics on there. It's not really. It's the same thing. It's, it's, uh, oh, no, I've got to fill this out. We've got to fill this out a little All right, bit. go on then. More, there's more, more details to this thing. So in, in, in a particular instance, is the loss of 1.6 million barrels per day of oil from uh, Libya because of the, the attack on Libya. That, resulted in a, that alone resulted in a $30 increase in the price of oil. Right. And... Um, and his model, based on that, his model predicts it will reduce GDP by about 2.4 percentage points by the end of 2011. So just that alone. So if you're wondering, you know, well, anyway, that's a whole other discussion about Libya. But in case anyone <laughs> was wondering, it was about oil. Right, <laughs> yeah, about, yeah. Right, so it wasn't about anything else. It was primarily about oil. There's a couple smaller issues, but I read a huge article about that last night um, that went in pretty good depth on it. And uh Essentially, um, you know, we went in there under the guise of human rights, which it turns out, you know, there, there nothing had happened. We just said, well, he might attack his people in Benghazi, even though there was nothing had been done, you know, and it's just total BS because, I mean, things have been going on in other countries that didn't have oil and we just, you know, we don't care, right? So, but anyway, that's the whole thing. Of, that's, that's a whole other topic. But the, the one thing it was sort of, um, it's sort of the, the whole issue of peak oil, which, you know, it's something I've been following since, I don't know, probably back in 2003, 2002 is when I first became aware of it, which is essentially that we're, the world is running out of oil, mm-hmm. which isn't a surprise. I mean, it's a, fin- I mean, a finite-sized planet. There's a finite amount of easily accessible oil. I should say we're running out of easily accessible oil. Right? Yeah, because there's, there's, new, there's new techniques and new resources that we can tap to get uh, oil, right? Right. I mean, there's, you know, they tar you can sand. Break it out. You can break it out of rocks and things like that. There's stuff that's, you know, under the sea, at, you know, a thousand feet down. And there's always kind of thing. It might be stuff in the Arctic. Um, but when you talk about easily accessible oil, light, sweet, crude oil, the kind of stuff that's in Libya or West Texas and other places, um, stuff that's Saudi Arabia, um, it's that, you know, we're running out of it. Right. And it's not only that, but it's just getting harder and harder to get to it. And the, and, and the, the more energy that it costs to retrieve that oil eventually hit a point where it's not worth it. It takes more energy to get it out than you can get from the oil itself once it's, once it's pulled out of the ground. Right. So, so what's your main point and interest in the current discussion? Well, I mean, you know, that I, I mean, I think energy is the fundamental biggest issue in our lives far out, far outweighing you know, climate change or anything like that in terms of things that people have to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something that I paid a lot of attention to for a while, and I stopped paying attention to it because there's nothing you could do about it, but it is sort of like kind of a downer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what was interesting is, so you saw the price of oil spike up to almost $150 back in uh, 2008. Yeah. And what happened was um, once it got up to a certain level, um, you saw demand destruction, which means that, Oil got so expensive, energy got so expensive that it it had a real negative effect on GDP, which is exactly what this guy, James Hamilton, what his models are suggesting, right? Which isn't a big surprise, right? Because oil 
petroleum is the fundamental energy a component of energy um, production in our in our world. I mean, we have we get a lot from coal and things like that, but it's in everything, right? But it's not just about energy; it's also about plastic and 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 you know uh, manufacturing. That's right. It's in plastics and fertilizers. It's in everything. I mean, you look around your house and like everything that you we live off of is made you know, it has some relationship to oil. So it's a big deal when you think of, a, of the world kind of running out of it or rather it becoming harder and harder to harder to get. So like if all of a sudden we come up, we reach a ceiling where we can't get more than a certain amount of oil production per day or per year, um, you, it, it makes it more and more difficult to see how we can have uh, economic growth, right? What, I, what I'm trying to get to is what is your point about this? My point is that... What we're seeing is that, and what this guy was talking about is that we have an constraint. We have an have oil. The lack of available growth in energy, um, in 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 oil in particular, could constrain the our ability for our ec- ec- economies worldwide to grow. Right? right, right. Which means it makes it very difficult for businesses to develop and things because if it becomes sort of a zero-sum game, right? It's not like things keep getting better, people get wealthier and get richer. I mean, technology can make things more efficient, but it becomes that much more difficult. So it's kind of like you're running into a headwind. But what about uh, people like Elon Musk, who's you know tr- really focused on trying to get us off fossil fuels, and also what I was just talking about there, for example, in Japan, since they had that nuclear um, incident, They've been doing a lot of uh, research into into various different types of energy, and one of the things they've come up with is the wind lens. And basically, uh, the wind lens is just a simple lens that you put that has a very specific shape that you put on front of any wind turbine, and it makes it three times more efficient because of the kind of uh, wind vortexes that it creates. And they think that this will dramatically increase the energy that you can get from wind. Yeah, so, I mean, right, I... I'm a believer in technology. I mean, I think I'm I'm an I'm an overall an optimist because of technology. I'm a pessimist about politics. I think politics is what screws us up, but I think usually, but it's usually the innovations that come out of um you know, for, for, as a result of uh, technology and 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 uh, you know and, and startups, right? I mean, that's that's usually what that's what's going to save us. If anything, it's not going to be our politicians and mm-hmm. our politics and and, and entrenched interests. Yeah, Those are going to be people like Elon Musk. That's right. But that said, it's a hell. It's going to be. It's a hell of a thing to change. I mean, it's it's not like we create a new iPad and four or five years later, everybody has like these cool iPads and. That's some neat new thing that's changed the way people are consuming content. I mean, you're talking about... Well, well, you say that like as if it was quick to create an iPad, but the iPad, basically, Steve Jobs was working on for his whole career, you know, for like 25 years, so... <laughs> no, that's, that's not right, right? I mean, oh, you're no, talking... that is right. I mean, Steve, Steve Jobs was working on tablets uh, like 20, 20 years before the iPad came out, and uh, he, always his vision was to, was to move in that direction. Yeah, but having... Okay, that's that's stretching it a bit. It's not like you have a, a, a concerted, focused effort on like this is what we're going to build. I mean, they arrived at that point eventually, um, but it's not like they had the, some continual focused effort on building some of the iPad. But well, that's it, ke- a it separate- kept on coming. It kept on coming back to it, though. I mean, he kept on going. I need to make a tablet. I need to make a tablet. I need to make a tablet. And he kept on coming back and coming back and coming back. So it was always his his dream that's fine that's true okay fine that you know sure i mean you can if you can you can kind of connect the dots backwards and say it's all led to this but what all i'm just saying is that transforming our entire modern industrial civilization off of petroleum 
isn't it's it's like turning the Titanic in like a in a, in a really small area. It's just it's just not gonna happen very easily. So right. what what's going to happen, I think, is that you're going to have these things where because we may not be able to get oil production above sort of like I think like eighty six, eighty seven. Um, I think it's million barrels a day. If if you can't get past that point, what'll happen is once we hit up against that. Uh, that ceiling, the the prices of oil spike, right? Which then cause demand destruction, which causes a recession, right? And what happens at that point when oil spikes, then all of a sudden things like wind and solar become interesting for business investment, right? And then all of a sudden for like a, a year or two, everyone's like, hey, solar, wind, nuclear, we got to do all these other things. And then the price of oil plummets again because we got in a recession, we destroyed demand. It goes from 115, uh, 50 down to you know 50 or 60 dollars a barrel, and people are like, ask, you know that that oil, that um, wind and solar stuff just can't compete with the price of oil, right? Mm-hmm. And then so everybody loses interest in it temporarily. Demand starts to pick up a little bit. GDP starts to pick up a little bit, and then as it, and then all of a sudden we hit the ceiling again, and boom, the price spikes, and we repeat over and over again. Okay. So I think what you're going to see is is the development of these alternatives will become interesting and then uninteresting repeatedly because of this constantly butting up against the ceiling. Okay. I think that's what we're going to see. That's my prediction. You're going to see a variation of that of spikes, demand destruction, price lowering, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of Steve Jobs, yeah, um, I read an interesting. Uh, thing in uh, Harvard Business Review that's is called uh, Steve Jobs and the Eureka Myth. Which yeah. is that? Did you read that one? Well, I I, I saw it, um, but I didn't read it in full. Okay. So basically, you said no. You're not, <laughs> you're not reading the links that I sent. <laughs> go on, go on. Enlighten us. Well, okay. The, the the key takeaway from it was that you get this impression that like, um, somebody, you know, whether it's I, it was a Johnny Ives who I guess he's like the big industrial designer there at Apple or someone just, just sits in a room and just comes up with the design and they, and they bring it to Steve Jobs and he says yes or no and they come back to him a few times and then they have some beautiful thing, right? But it's more like an iteration rather than some big thing, yeah. Actually, what they do is they have, they develop 10 pixel-perfect prototypes that, that, that they all, that are all completed and then of those 10, in parallel, they then pick three. What does that okay? mean, pixel perfect? I mean, they're not just like, you know, they, they I, I mean, that's the way they describe it. What I'm assuming is it's, the pro, it's, a, it's a working, at least from a physical standpoint, it's, it's not just a model. It's not something out of clay or something, some kind of like fa- uh, plastic mock-up. I mean, it's, this is what it is exactly going to be. Huh. So, okay. so basically, for an iPad, they would create with an aluminum shell and with the glass all polished and so that you could touch, you could hold this thing and they'd say, this is what it is. I'm guessing that's, they said pixel perfect. That was the exact phrase. I mean, I'm just going to have the assumption it's that or something close to it, as close as they could get to it based on, you know, constraints and manufacturing prototypes. But what they do is they have 10, but there's 10 of them, right? They say, all right, let's get 10 of these. And then we're going to sit down and we're going to look and play with them and feel them and say, okay, what are the top three? And then when they get those top three, they then iterate on those top three and they compete against each other until they, until they pick one. Yeah, I'm seeing here, I'm looking at the article and the big bold line of the whole article is <clears throat> because Apple knows that the more you compete inside Apple, the less you have to compete outside Apple. Which kind of reminds me of, you know, in, in, in software development, they talk about like every stage that you, uh, so the stages of software development, you have kind of concept, design, um, uh, you know, implementation, 
testing um, and then in production. Well, every stage that a uh, every, uh, that a bug gets past a certain stage, the fix it's ten times more expensive to fix it. Mm. So it's, it's it's ten times it's ten times more expensive to fix something in implementation than it is in design. Right. See, see, this is why I like when working with designers to get like 10, <laughs> 10 versions so you can kind of pick on a version and then move forward on that. I'd like that too idea, but here's my, my um, twist on it. What I would like to do, and I mentioned this to you before, and I think we've talked about this in the podcast, but I think the best way is you do kind of like the 99 design things, which you have people compete, but you pay them. If you go and you get, you know, five or 10 high, let me know if you do 10, 10's a lot. Let's right, just say you yeah. go five, okay. right? And you pick five really high quality designers you like working with and say, look, I'll pay you, you know, $500 or $1,000 or whatever. Let's say $1,000 for a design, a fundamental design of a page. And I want five, each one of the guys to compete and I'll pay you at the end of it. And if yours makes it to the next phase, you'll get a $500 bonus, right? And we pick up the top one and then we go with that design. And then you could end up at any layer bringing five people compete. And, but they're all completely independent visions because if you have one designer, it's usually like he has his favorite, right? And then these other ones, they're just sort of subtle. They always seem like they're just subtle variations. They're not really different visions of, of the design. I do like that idea, but I think $1,000 per, per go is, is obviously out of our price range. But for someone like Apple, that could totally be awesome, right? Well, maybe, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe it's like uh, $500. I mean, just for one design or one page. I mean, you had five guys, it's just, you know, five designers or girls, whatever, five design, designers say, just just one page, you know, I, you know, did it in a couple of days. That is a great business idea. Okay, so 99 designs, but rather than people pitching for it, you just pick five designers and you pay them $100 each or whatever. So they do, so they all do make money or you pay them a couple of hundred or whatever, whatever it is. I mean, that is a, that's a great different, a, a much better take than the 99 designs concept. Yeah. See, I think I, I, I don't like 99 designs. Same reason I don't like Elance and Odesk. It's just, it just really becomes a race to the bottom and mm. it, it just sort of disrespects the people who are true experts, true craftsmen. Um, and it's like you get a bunch of students or um, people who are maybe underemployed. And, and, and so it brings the price down for everyone, but also brings the real quality down. I mean, the stuff you get off 9 Designs might look pretty decent to somebody who has no eye for design or aesthetics at all. And maybe it's way better than what they could have done. But it's just it's, it's kind of lame usually in comparison to what you get from a, a real designer. But if you got five you know, real high quality designers say, look, we'll pay this market rate. I mean, you know, whatever that market rate is, you know, we're not, you know, you're not trying to chintz them or cut them out, but we're only going to commit to one page. You know, we're going to get one design thesis and we're going to go five of you. And, you know, you can, at the next round, you know, we yeah. can say, okay, well, that's the design thesis. We could also have five visions of something. Well, this, this discussion now reminds me of any And I would love to ask you, where the hell are we with any <laughs> <laughs> Where are we with any so Jason, tell us where we are. Okay, so where we are, we are, um, okay, so the, in terms of the design, um, we have the design, we have, a, we have some feedback for Daniel, right? So there's a few, few things, adjustments that we want done on the, uh, what's it called, the mood board? No, uh, not the mood no, board. No, the, the mood board, yeah. we're, we're done with the mood, we've got the logo, we've got the mood board, now we're, he's designing the, expert, the expert's profile, he's finished designing it, he's submitted a version to us, and we're um, giving give feedback, and we want that change but then also we want to move forward we want to move forward when are we going to move forward jason so the design is taking longer than i'd like and me too i think that's part of the 
I think that's part of the problem with when you when you work with contractors because they have other clients, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like it, things just move a little slower. I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I I don't know. I mean, don't you think that we should basically start building a a version of this? Just just like forget about the design. Like we've got a logo, whatever. Just start building a version that has um, what's it? Semantic HTML. And just start knocking this thing out so that any designer can drag as long as they want. And by the time we get our designs back, we'll have this thing built in semantic HTML. We don't care what it looks like. Yeah, I think we should start this week. I'm, I, I've got Appignite back up. I mean, I mm. was kind of dragging my feet a little bit because I wanted to fix some stuff on Appignite because Appignite had been sort of brought down. Yeah. And now it's back up and kicking with the new infrastructure and the new models and everything. And so I can, uh, I can go ahead and start building some stuff this week. You know what so. I would really like to do um, is to do what I do with any other, con- you know, consultancy job or any other con- uh, company that I work with. Because, you know, typically I'll lead projects like this. And the first thing we'll do is we'll split up the whole thing functionally and then we'll create milestones and we'll shoot for those mar- milestones and try and get it done to, to various deadlines. So basically create yourself a milestone roadmap of when this thing's going to be rolled out. I'd love to do that if, that if you're okay with that. All right. Yeah. Well, we can uh, maybe we can see. I don't know. We could try and do that tomorrow night. You want to try and do that tomorrow night? I, I, I would really love to do that and, and get it into Pivotal Tracker so that we can start getting stories and just, just make it real easy and we can see where we're at and we can kind of feel like we're moving forward. Because I, th- I think what I feel like is for the last month, it, it's just like, it's kind of like wading through treacle or molasses. I guess you probably don't use treacle. Yeah. yeah. So I just feel like we just need to kind of really start moving on this. Yeah, I think it, I do feel like it's kind of um, it's kind of gotten slow because of the the design process is taking mm-hmm. taking a while. Right. But uh, you know we we can start we can start building it and and uh, start moving forward with that. So yeah, awesome. we'll do that this week. But um, okay, so uh, planning for no. any food's first planning meeting is scheduled for tomorrow night. You heard it here first, folks. We're get, we're we're moving into professional mode starting Tuesday night. Awesome. Well, let's get a little update on uh, Plugio. So you, um, I saw that you posted on a startup guild. You did three separate pricing schemes for your power user, business, and agency. Well, you you really helped. I mean, I I kind of had had it in my mind that I wanted to split it up that way, but you really helped solidify it. So we had a brainstorming session, and um, we were we were screen sharing and we spoke about it, and then yourself and myself came up with these three groups and you actually really inspired me because of the De- the Dell thing. You were like, look, you know, when you go to the Dell website, you choose business or you choose home or you choose education. Right. And then the whole website has that context. Right. So that was what we discussed and we've done the same thing with Plugio. And I, I think you're absolutely right. And basically it from, from the survey.io results, and this this is what really helped me because the survey.io, I was so confused because there were so many different types of users. But when I break it down, I couldn't put it down into one type of user. But when I break it down into the three types of users, the power user, the business user, and the agency user, then it all makes sense. Yeah, I, I guess that would be confusing <laughs> when you have three different categories of user and you're trying to look at them as one user. Um, and I guess sometimes when you do that, they do these like cluster analysis. So if you were plotting it on some uh, two-dimensional space, you'd see like uh, three circles around the data points and say, okay, they're kind of clustered around these 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 attributes. Yeah. And I don't know what your attributes you're you know you were um, sort of looking at, but yeah, I think I mean 
from being on the outside and just hear you talk about it, I mean, it sounded like those were your three groups, your agency, your business, and your power user. And when you first showed me your list of like 12 or six, I think you had 16 different videos you were thinking about, and they were all one after the other, and I was just like, whoa, dude, that's like total cognitive overload. Right, And yeah. I don't even know, I mean, you know, they, they talk about the tyranny of choice, you heard that, which is like, there's too many choices, I'm frustrated and stressed just having to think through all the all these options. Just give me three choices. That is a good point, because... Uh, what I should mention is is that, to be honest, this really is your idea, this whole thing of splitting it up. Um, because I did. I, I reworked the site. I reworked the front page. And my, my first idea was to basically, because I couldn't narrow it down into groups, I tried to make one video for every possible type of group. So I had like 16. No, no it was uh, three by four. So I had like 12, 12 different types of videos. And you were like, no, 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 that's that's too much. That's too much. And that was the discussion where we said, okay. Yeah, I was just, it was cognitive overload, man. I was right. like, wow, that's too much. And, and so, um, you know, I mean, look, I, everything I was saying, I said, intuitively, I think you want to break it into three groups. If you, if there's, if that makes any kind of sense based on what you understand about your customer base. And then, and then once you get into each of those three, uh, one of the, each of the, each one of the three categories, um, you can then list the features and the pricing, and everything can be based on that. You can have videos that are, that are really specifically geared towards that user. So you have three videos for the power user, right? Or three videos for the agency person. Because if you have stuff that really isn't relevant to that group, it's just going to confuse them and lead them astray or bore them, right? They're going to be like, I, this isn't what I want, right? I, honestly, I think this is like the best brainstorming session that, that we've had in a long time. This is, I feel this is really going to help Plugio. Because it's, gonna, it's just going to make each of those user types focus in on their section. And the way that I've done the website now is I've just got these three big buttons on the homepage. Basically, right. power user, business, or agency. Then you click on the button, and then you go into an area of the site that just markets towards that type of user. You know, and so, Because a power user has a completely different purpose than a business user. A business user, it's all about marketing their website. You know, It's right. about just making it as easy. Whereas a power user, it's about interacting with people... And just they're looking for a Twitter tool that makes Twitter easier. You know? Right. Well, it's like when we were talking to uh, Ramit um, at the MicroConf. And I don't know how many users he has. It sounds like he has a huge Twitter following. Yeah. And, you know, things that he was saying that he wanted had nothing to do with having multiple Twitter accounts. Right. No, but he was no. saying he'd be willing to pay a fair chunk of change for something that would make his interaction with Twitter more efficient. Well, I, you know, based on that, so <clears throat> I, I re, I stepped backward and thought about this whole pricing matrix problem from the beginning. I said, okay, look, I've got my pricing matrix now, which is like how many Twitter accounts you've had, and and that was just kind of ridiculous. And that's what Ramit and Hittenshaw were saying, and and you were also kind of agreeing that it just didn't make sense. So I thought, what possible metrics could work to make this whole pricing model work, especially now that I've got these three user types, and I can see that the key ones are. Actually, the number of followers. <laughs> I mean, I, I originally you you had said that, and I was like, yeah. no, that 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 can't work. That can't work. But the more I thought about it, I really think that can work. Because to be honest, I mean, someone with like the lowest level account, if you cap them off at five thousand followers, that's kind of fair enough because they're not paying very much, and you're giving them a tool to manage an entire five thousand followers, and then you can say, right, if you if you go above the five thousand follower cap now you need to kind of upgrade and you get a little bit more of a powerful tool see what i'm saying yeah absolutely i mean i'm not a big twitter user and i don't have a lot of uh insight into the use of twitter 
from that perspective. But um, I was, I think we were talking about, I just threw that out there as like, I meant like, how, well, how, okay, you got a power user. How do you categorize them? I think the only way you can categorize them is like how big your Twitter following is, you know, not really knowing whether that was easily measurable or anything, but yeah. So I, I've spent, I mean, I would say literally eight hours, not all in one block, but in different sections looking at this matrix. Cause now there's, I've got three plans for each of these types, like power user plans, business plans, and agency plans. And so for, I literally spent eight hours looking at all the different ways of working this out and tweaking this so that it makes sense that a power user would go for this type of plan and a business user would go for this type of plan. And I feel I've done a good job. And now it goes, it starts, the lowest plan is $12 a month going up to the highest plan of $324 a month. For which category? So for, for well, for all, for when you include all categories. So, okay. so the, the power user plans, as I've got them at the moment, go from $12 a month up to $36. So it's, it's $12, $24, $36, just for okay. a power user. But then when you go up to the agency plans, it, go, it starts off at $108. The next one's $216. The next one's $324. Right. And, and basically what I then bring into it is team members. So another thing that I've done is with this whole thing, I've had to build a whole bunch of new functionality into Plugio to make it work this way. Because right. it just didn't work that way, right? right. So that there's no such thing as group plans. But I realized that that is a, you know, group plans are a big deal. Like if, if you're an agency, you want to buy, you want to buy um, something for six members. You want to pay for six team members with one payment kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's something that also really can help to, to move that price up. You know, and I think all these things are going to have to be tested. I mean, so you just take your best shot based on, you know, common sense and what you think about, what you understand about how, how our brains work. You know, okay, you, you, cognitive overload. So we don't want to put too much information. We want to break it into three groups. Okay, so, and we want the pricing structure basically maybe three, four levels tops. Um, and you just kind of think intuitively about like, well, what is this group going to want versus other groups and based on what your communication with users. But then you're going to have to, those all can be in flux. I mean, you can test all these prices. You might be able to raise some of those higher price, higher end prices much higher. So $36 for the top end power user sounds cheap to me. Yeah. Based on what Ramit was saying. I mean, mm. Ramit sounded like he was willing to pay $100 a month for something that was going to save him a lot of time. Yeah, that's, that, it is true. And, but uh, by the same token, I think that I am up against um, applications like Hootsuite, right? Okay. And, and those guys do have certain pricing, and, I, and I'm not sure that I should go above their pricing or not. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, well, I think it's something you have to, ex- you'll, you have to experiment with because, you know, it sounds to me like you've, picked, you've made some very good common sense um, categorizations and things, but at some point you're going to have to do some optimization based I thought on... It was, I thought it was better okay. off to start with low, low price points and then move up. Because that way, people won't be pissed off when I then raise the price points. See what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that's yeah. probably. I think this is what David Cancel did at Performable. They yeah. talked about how they just kept raising the price and raising the price, and it just was. Yeah. It just kept getting better and better for them as a company. They get better customers and more revenue and less support. Yeah, and you you know something on the on the on the plans and pricing page, I tried really hard to move away from the base camp model, and I tried I don't know six different design variants. But at the end of the day, that Basecamp way of doing it, um, the, the 37 signals, it, it's just really good. Well, what so, do you want to describe what it is? If, well, what it, what it is, it's like you have, you have three panels or four panels next to each other, and each panel explains what the account is. And then you have one large panel that you try and highlight. And that's the way that it's going to be on Plugio. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm just going to accept the fact that it looks like 37 signals. 
That's fine. Nobody cares. No. Nobody cares. Well, so what's the, we need any updates on the numbers, or has it still been flat? No, no, it hasn't been flat. Um, so what I did was I wrapped up marketing uh, from from the Plugio account. I put in, I used the bulk scheduling feature on Plugio, and basically every three days I do a tweet that says "Get your stats by email." And I did a couple of other campaigns like that on a couple of t- Twitter accounts, and then I also got the guy blogging again. And um, so for the first, and, and what we do on the blog is we basically say, uh, we basically say we'll interview one, interview you on our blog if you're successful at marketing using Twitter. So we we interview people. We put out one interview every day uh, okay. for, for five days a week. So basically, in its own right, that brings those people into touch with Plugio. But also anyone, you know, they then tweet it out and anyone who looks at that also comes into touch with Plugio. So the figures for August were 2,632. That was the revenue, which is great because it's the first time that it's actually gone up since the month of June. Because in the month of June, it was 2,599. Right. So I, I had a steadily upward trend up until June where it peaked at 2,599. Then it went back down to 2,506. But then in August, it's gone back up and now it's on its upward trend. And I'm seeing that that kind of one user, you know, one paying sign up a day to 1.5 paying signups a day again. Yeah. And it may have something to do with the summer. It may have to do with the fact that you were so busy during that contract. Um, when you were out of town, I sort of not really deeply engaged with Plugio. So it's, well, it might be hard to figure out what was the cause of it, but yeah. And I, and I have added quite a few new features to Plugio recently as well. So I've been working on it for the last two weeks, basically full time, really, really hardcore. And I will do for another week, and then I will be getting back into um, contract work. So, when, well, when are you going to roll out this new, a whole new pricing scheme and and everything? Okay. Well, I just I've I've once again this has required some pretty big fundamental changes at the framework um, to to deal with things like multiple accounts and to deal with splitting the whole site up into three three plans. Um, I, as I say, I've been working hard on that for the last two weeks. I'm I'm getting very close to the point of releasing it. I just need to do a little bit more coding, and then I think I can release it probably within the next couple of days. Oh, that's great! Yeah, that's great. I'm very excited for it. Yeah, no, I'm. I'll be. I'll be very interested to see how that uh, how that affects things. I think you're going to have to write up some um, marketing based on that, right? Like, you know, you need to try and do some promotion, like Plugio's new um, structure or something. I, well, I mean, the I, thing I, that I really want to do, if it works, I'm. I'm excited, and not that this is going to help Plugio in any way, but I'm excited about the fact that finally I've got something that I can I can make sense of those Survey.io results and and make action, something actionable out of them, which I couldn't understand how to do before. And it was by it's by kind of slicing it in these three ways that it means wow, that actually makes sense now. Right. I, I want to write a blog post about that. Right? Yeah. Well, you should. You should. Um, so uh, yeah, you want to hear Epic Night? Yes, please. Well, so a couple things that are interesting. I mean, I, I as I mentioned earlier, uh, I got App Ignite back up and working all because it was sort of in pieces for a couple months because I had taken it apart and tried to make too many changes and uh, got everything up and, and working again. And one of the things, one of the changes that I wanted to make because of uh, some performance issues, at the very least, was move things over the client side from PHP to JavaScript. Yeah, you're talking about that one, yeah. Yeah, and it's for a lot of reasons. I think it's going to be a lot of benefits from it. But one of it is that sometimes you would make a change and um, and would regenerate the model, and it would take like a minute to come back. Right. 
are never. <laughs> I was like, I had a couple beta testers like, yeah, it works, it works. And all of a sudden I update a model and it's just, you know, you're like, is this broken or what happened, right? And I, I'm not exactly sure what the problem was. Part, it could be something with the VPS, uh, the virtual private server. Um, so, I, I mean, we, uh, we, so sorry to interrupt, but are we basically saying that what you're doing is the structure of models are going to be maintained in JavaScript memory, and then they're going to kind of somehow communicate with the server what, those, what that structure is? Yeah, so you, you have like the definition of the entire application Right now, the whole, the, the mo- I guess you'd call the model, not model as like in a data object, but the model of the entire application, um, the definitions of everything, of the models, of the views, of, you know, whatever, that's all held in PHP. And every single time you go to a new page, all that stuff is read from a, from a file, it constructs a speak app definition, and then provides whatever information needs to be provided to the, to the page the, through PHP so that then you can interact with it, Right. And then when you say regenerate, generate, so you make some change to the application definition, and then it regenerates everything, all the files, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a little heavy duty, but I didn't, you know, I didn't want to get too cute and say, well, we made this change so it only affects certain files, because sometimes it's hard to, to tell. You know, just like, you know, when you would write code and you would say build versus rebuild the entire thing, sometimes you'd have to do a full rebuild because um, certain files got out of date and the... And the you know, compiler linker to couldn't figure out or the builder couldn't figure out that some files need to be rebuilt. But how does the in-memory definition, in JavaScript memory definition, tell the back end how to join two tables? Um, For example. That's fact, I'm trying to figure out how to answer that question. Uh, well, it, it, it will just generate the, the definite, based on the definition, the generator will take, let's say a model generator will take a definition and the definition will say you have these many, these properties, with you know these attributes to the properties and these relationships to the other models or tables, and then it will generate the corresponding code to do that. In PHP or JavaScript? PHP. All this is done in PHP. But, but I thought I you did, said you were doing it. To yeah. Moving it to now JavaScript. what I'm doing, I moved. I'm moving everything to JavaScript. So it'll be a one-page app, just like Prezo was. So it'll be super fast. It'll just be instantaneous. There'll be no lag whatsoever. But how no will the, So where will the database be? So the the um, well again you're talking you're not talking about the the actual generated application I'm talking about App Ignite itself I'm not talking about the application that you generate okay yeah but it's but two the, separate but, things but the interesting thing is it kind of makes you think well well shouldn't just that what App Ignite be shouldn't shouldn't everything be JavaScript shouldn't the generated applications be JavaScript as well as the application itself yeah in Node.js. Yeah, well, eventually, I think that's what we're going to do. I mean, I want to be able to generate not just a PHP, sort of a traditional web application, be able to generate sort of a, a, a single-page um, application um, that maybe uses JoJS or, or whatever. I think that would be really slick. I yeah. think that would also get a lot of attention because there's a lot of people who want to build those kind of apps. And, of course, you can leverage all the cool things that you can do with Node and with client-side JavaScript with sort of real-time events and, and you know, that kind of stuff. That's that's an interesting. So so, where are you at with that? I basically got the madness. Uh oh. Since <laughs> we talked, and I couldn't yeah. stop myself. So Uh-oh. I'm about ninety percent through. I mean, I I just because well, I had to convert everything from PHP to JavaScript, right? I mean, that's a that's a, a lot. Of, I mean, App Ignite has a lot of files, a lot of code, and um, so what I did is I found this. Something that was called Harmony or something, Harmony Framework. And I, because I just did a search in Google, like for, you know, P, convert, PHP to JavaScript conversion. 
And I guess there's this framework that's sort of in beta or alpha that's really kind of rough, but you can test it out. You can just paste some PHP in this text box, hit parse, and then and there'll be this other text box that'll convert it. It'll be the converted JavaScript. And then you just cut and paste that into your text editor, right? And so I did that with every single file. Now, some of the stuff, it, it, it did about... I would say it did about 90% of it. There was some of the stuff was not quite right, and the, and the spacing and dentation was kind of screwed up in some places. But, you know, with just, like, go through that and then, say, 10 minutes per file of going through and changing, changing a few things, and then you, were, then you had it. So it probably, whereas normally it might take you 45 minutes to go through a file, removing all the, you know, doing all the fine replaces. Even if you ran a bunch of regexes, you still would have to do a bunch of hand coding to fix it, so... You know what? I don't know if this is a good idea, but I think that it's a damn good thought experiment anyway, or just it's beyond a thought experiment. It's just an experiment. I think it's very, very interesting. Oh, there's that word again. <laughs> That's fine. So, well, it's, here, here are some, here are some of the, uh, the, un, the sort of unintended benefits. So the, the, what of, the reason I was doing it primarily is just because of the performance issue, because if you have just one or two people on it, and any time they regenerated the app, it, there'd be a certain times where it would just take like five or ten seconds, or maybe even like a minute for the page to refresh. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's just not going to work, right? That's 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 just that's broken. Yeah, it's annoying. Yeah, that's not, it's not beyond annoying. People are just going to say, "Screw this!" Right? Mm -hmm. um, it needs to be instantaneous. And uh, you know, I don't know if it had something to do with the VPS configuration or whatever. But right now, I don't have the funds to create my own dedicated server, and 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 plus, I'm not a Linux guy, and I didn't want to go in and start screwing around with all that. So I'm like, well, how can I completely eliminate that? Well, I can do all the generation client side, and 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 that in that way, it just sends back some fi whatever files need to be changed. It sends those back using you know through ajax or whatever and it just saves the files are just saved there's almost nothing done on the server it's kind of funny just to think that it's going to be sending back php via ajax which is going to get written to the server like it's it sounds it sounds like a security nightmare so how are you gonna how are you gonna deal with the security aspects of that hmm well i mean again this is just generating the application and you know it'll be https once you're logged in so well, so here's the other big benefits of it. Um, being able to debug things client-side, using the Chrome or Firefox debugger is going to be awesome. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that in and of itself is, is dramatically in, in, improve the, uh, the, the quality of the code. Because right now, I, you know, I have to use, like, print statements and stuff. Because, you know, I know there are, there are, there are development environments like Zend, I think Zend Studio. But those are for, like, Windows and stuff. And I don't know, I guess... Oh, Jeff Welpley, who's a friend of mine, a listener, he said, hey, use Zen Studio, but it's like this Windows app. And I was like, you know what? I just can't bring myself to spend $300 now like a Windows GUI on no, my no, OS no, X. No. I was like, I know it's completely irrational, but I can't do it. No, no, you can use yeah. Eclipse anyway. I mean, you can use Eclipse. Eclipse has a whole PHP development and you know, debug environment. I, I tried that. I tried to get in Eclipse. They said, oh, well, then you just you configure X debug, and then you can do you know, debug, and you can do all the call stack and variable watch. But I couldn't get it to work. I, I spent like an hour and a half, two hours on it, searching through forums that can get to work. And you're, like, you're the same as me. It's like, I've got a text editor, I've got a web browser, I've got a server. I can just do it faster that way. Why do I need to spend a day learning how to set this whole other thing up, you know? I, I, I guess I have, and it's probably irrational. I mean, I'm sure people listening will be like, oh, you know, well, you yeah, just spent yeah. a couple hours configuring. But it's like, I just, I, I hate spending hours and hours configuring. Because first of all, you spend two hours configuring, there's no guarantee that another couple hours you're going to get working. It just might not get it working, you know. It's like, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes some configurations, it's just, uh, you know, I don't know. I've been in that situation, configuration hell. And someone says, oh well, you know, 
just do X and then you just try and do X and then you read 10 different forum threads trying to figure out and then nobody's solved it as far as you can tell and you're just like, well, I don't you know. know. I you know, work. we promised not to talk about code again or coding or anything no, like that. No. <laughs> we decided we were never going to talk about that again because it elicits too many... Um, People get Blames. really upset. Yeah. People get really upset when you talk about. <laughs> oh, I'm not saying one code is better than the other, but what what I'm saying is that I r- am really fast and uh, in my comfort zone when I'm writing JavaScript and I can de- and I can um, edit it or I can debug it and run it through either the Chrome Developer um, Debugger or or Firefox's Firebug. I mean, it's just the, the you know the that makes it so easy and. The, the, the Epic Night code base got really large, and so now I can bring it over, and, I just, and I'm already cleaning it up, and you can just take, immediately inspect all these objects and have all these you know, call stacks and watch variables. I mean, stuff that's like, you know, I did 10 year, 15, 20 years ago in uh, C++, but in PHP, it's just not common, and it makes it hard to debug complicated code. Right, yeah. So, and the other thing is, you know, I work with Guyon, and Guyon's a JavaScript guy. I mean, well, okay, he's also a C++ and .NET guy, but... You know, in, in terms of web stuff, he's a JavaScript guy. He's not a PHP guy. So when we're in PHP land, he's a little out of his element. Mm-hmm. And so when we put it into JavaScript, he's now back in the game. Yeah, no, that's good. That's great. I think, it's, I think it's a great initiative. And I'm, I'm hoping that <clears throat> it speeds up the, um, the output of any foo. <laughs> right. Because <Yeah, exactly. laughs> I want to make that shit happen. I know we're gonna make it happen. It's gonna happen soon. Um, All right. So, and on a slightly different tangent, um, at least on the Epic Night world, I had uh, lunch on Friday with uh, uh, Fez, who's a um, he was the primary investor in uh, Prezo. Right. And you remember I talked a while back about how I gave him, um, you know, a, a certain percentage of uh, of Epic Night going forward because I wanted I felt that he by investing in me sort of he vested and sort of just said look you just make it happen i'm an, i believe in you yeah you know, he wasn't he wasn't saying he wasn't looking over my shoulder saying you know wanting to meet every month and over and second guess me on everything he's just like hey call me if you want to talk about anything and we'd get together and he was just you no know, kind of like believed in me and then when when prezo ended up not making you know any money and and i felt really bad about it you know because we came so close but alas there was no he lost all his entire investment, right? So I, so I thought, you know, I'm going to give him some percentage of, of Appignite, no matter what. And uh, if he wants to put in a little money, I'll give him, you know, even more. Um, and so we had that conversation a while back. And, uh, you know, he, obviously he was very, um, I, obviously he was happy about that. Obviously he, he knew I didn't owe him anything and he thought that was a, you know, a nice gesture. So we had... Uh, you know, we we sort of caught up, and I said, "Look, you know, Epic Night is I'm we're, I'm really pushing on it again and trying to make something happen. And so what we're going to do is get this thing incorporated because he's like, you know, if if you're going to do this thing, let's just get this thing, let's set up a corporation and, and and really get it moving. Okay, which I thought was actually kind of helpful because sometimes you get somebody's outside of it, and from his perspective, it's a business is about making money. Whereas from Guyon, the perspective of of Guyon and I, it, it could be well, it's about that, but you know, we're kind of geeking out with it too, right? Yeah. Whereas he doesn't care about the geeking out. I mean, that's just like, that's beside the point. Like, hey, the technology's cool. You know, it's like, let's get this thing making money. You know, he sees the opportunity. He, he thinks it's a cool, cool idea. And um, so well, I'm going to go up and set incorporate. And what, one thing he suggested was uh, not doing an LLC, but doing an S, an S Corp. I see. And the, the reason that he suggested that um, 
was that when an LLC, if you're making it money, you got, well, and regardless, you have to distribute K1, uh, K1 um, forms to all of your partners. And if you're making money, essentially the way it works is that, like if you, let's say that you make a million dollars in profit, and let's say you have five investors in this LLC, or five uh, partners, okay? Each one of those partners, even if you funnel all that million dollars back into development, you're not, you're not you know, uh, paying dividends, let's say, or distributions, they would call it in, in an LLC language. Um, you would still have to, they still have to pay pack, uh, your all the partners would have to pay taxes on the gains, on that profit. So you would have to distribute money to them just so they could pay taxes on it, right? So it's kind of a complicated tax situation. Mm-hmm. But if it's an S-corp, it's just shares. So they, there's nothing to do. There's no end-of-year K-1, you know, partnership K-1s stuff. So, I, you know, I, I know there's some limitations that, it, uh, that the S-corp has over an LLC. There's a certain amount like foreign investors versus non-foreign in, uh, or Domestic versus foreign. In well, I went with escort numbers. for, for yeah. JV Multimedia. Now, what about it? Do you remember any of the details? Because I, I research this every time, and then I always forget. Every couple of years, I forget. What the, I don't remember why, but I, I do know that it's, it's working out quite well for me. So, no. So, if you're going to, if you're going to uh, take investment, and you're planning on going the venture route, like you know, if you're going to raise angel funds and or, or fan, friends and family and then your your goal is to eventually be venture funded then you you really need to be a c corp from everything i've read and yeah. i can't remember the details because they're kind of boring <laughs> they're very specific but essentially it has to do with venture funds are what limited partnerships so there's a limited general partners and the way the taxes work and all these sorts of things um it has to be a, a, they have to be investing in c corps um but if you're like a just a partnership. You're going to bootstrap it. You're not really planning on venture funding. If you do take funding, it might just be from a few people you know or some angels. And it's like it's not about you know going public or or selling to Google or Apple in three or four years. It's about building a, a business and then just living off of distributing profits. Um, then you can do an LLC or an S corp. I think. Okay. And and the S corp has shares, or an LLC has percentages. And I think they also both have the benefit of single pass through, so you don't pay corporate tax and also have to pay individual taxes. On that income but cool so okay so let's uh bring up another one of your uh funky topics all right so lab grown meat might be only six months away yum <laughs> i thought that was i thought that was kind of cool and interesting um oh god that sounds gross but really, you know you you wouldn't need it i don't know a part of me thinks that's a great idea a part of me is disgusted so I don't really but it wouldn't be any what- different I don't know. It's just the idea of meat being grown in a lab, like a thigh of a cow being grown, like the thigh muscle being grown just sounds really gross. But I guess the reality is, though, when you go and you're eating, um, let's say you're eating a steak, you're not thinking about that cow anyway. You don't even want to think about the cow being slaughtered, right? No. You don't, this is disgusting. You, don't, you're, you want to be removed as possible. So, you know, in some sense, you might just not think about it. And if you're not thinking about it and it just tastes the same, then it would probably be better for everyone involved. The, you know, the cow that isn't killed. <laughs> and well, what's, the, I mean, what's funny is, is that you, but hold on, you know, when you do things like you basically feed cow on corn or something and somehow it makes the meat taste different, you know, you feed yeah. it in a different way. Yeah. Like how, how does that translate to this? I mean, do you, it's going to taste like, uh, you know, some kind of lab chemicals or something. Yeah, it's going to taste like too, it's probably going to taste too, 
too, I don't know, rubbery or something weird, they're probably going to have to do stuff to it to make it seem like real meat, even if, yeah. even if, even if it is exactly the same. It's going to be Franken-meat. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it, it's great it, tech. It's, I mean, and, and, and it, it fits into the whole live to a thousand kind of thing, because if, if, if they can grow meat in that way, then they can grow organs and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I guess what they did is they used pig cells, and they were and they're creating these strips of like this muscle-like tissue. Mm-hmm. And the one they only have is they have like one sample they're doing. It's two point five centimeters by like about a point seven centimeters wide. And so the thing is, it's white though because it has there's no blood in it, yeah. and it's very little uh, myoglobulin. I think is what it's like myoglobin, myoglobin. Yeah, yeah. And and which is, I think is like an iron carrying protein that might give it some color. So anyway, they're gonna have to do some way. They're gonna have to figure out how to give it some color. And otherwise, it's going to look kind of weird. But then again, I don't know. I mean, if you cook it, once it's cooked, you may not really even know what it looks like. I mean, you know, it's like when you cook, I don't know. It's like when my wife cooks like um, meatball spaghetti and she uses turkey meat, right? I don't, you know, have no what, what meat looks like. So I don't know. Would you, would you eat, would you, how, what do you, I mean, you know, well, it looks, sounds like you're not going to eat any meat going forward. Is that sort of the plan? I'm, th- I'm thinking that. I'm thinking that. I mean, wow. so I, I'm very convinced by that movie. It was really, really good. Hmm. Are you going to watch that? I'm. I guess. <laughs> I'm going to keep. On, I'm going to keep on your back about this. I, I swear. Hey, God. All right. I'll. I'll watch it. I'll watch it. You know, I've kind of. I've kind of was thinking about this the other day because, um, I. I think for because, I. I, I sort of take this position of the perpetual, contrarian. Right. Because, and I think it's because of you. <laughs> I don't. Think, I, well, I think I'm a contrarian. I'm a skeptic generally. I'm generally a skeptic. Someone says X is true. I'm like, huh. You know, kind of like a programmer, right? Someone says, oh, this is always true. You're like, I'll bet there's an edge case that's not true. I'll bet there's situations that's not true. Um, and you know, it drives Sandy crazy. You know, because she'll say something, and I'm like, well, how do you know that? Who told you that? Where'd you read that? What's the evidence? <laughs> and she's like, God, you're so exhausting. You know, and uh, you'll so you'll say something like, this is the best practice, or this is you know, true because so-and-so said it or because it was in this book. And I I immediately just, my instinct is just to uh, take the opposite side. (laughs) And I was, I I don't know why that is, but I've just, uh, no. So basically our our show has literally changed your personality. It's probably not true, but it's, what I think it does is that I noticed that, you know, for instance, when you're around certain people, your personality adjusts slightly. So like my brother is, a clown. So when I'm around him, I'm the serious guy, right? When I'm around other people, I'm the clown. So I'm always, I'm the, I'm the jokester. Right, and it just right. depends. You know, if it's my little brother, then all of a sudden I'm the serious older brother. And so, um, you know, when, when I might be kind of getting cynical and pessimistic about like world politics or economics, and then I talk to my older brother, who's a total cynic, a total pessimist, I'm like, Mr. Like, well, Jay, I don't know if it's quite that, you know, da, da, da. So I take the, the conventional wisdom, you know, establishment view. So I guess I, I'm just the kind of lib- libertarian kind of, uh, no, what's, the, what's the word for it? I guess I'm like the hippie kind of guy, right? No, 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 no. Who no, believes no. in all sorts of stuff and then you no, don't believe. No, no, no. Well, okay, no, that may- <sighs> That's true. That's true too. You you tend to. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, but I, hey, listen. I'm not the one who's always going on about UFOs and stuff. Well, that's just that's my one. That's my one. You know, 
uh, that's the one area where I diverge, where I think there's... But it doesn't make sense. Like, if you're going to go on about UFOs, why don't you start looking into alternative health and things like that? Because a lot of that stuff, as I don't think the evidence is compelling, just because, just because one set of evidence... Um, has some interest is interesting is compelling because of you know the stuff that I the stuff that uh, Leslie Keen. But you, uh, that's Keen. because you've looked at that evidence. You haven't looked but at I alternative looked at stuff that looks no, like you don't. Looks like crap. You know. Well, the <laughs> stuff that you told me what was like that tough that you were talking about the seven grams that leaves your body when you die. Well, that turns out to be total crap. I that's mean, it's not. Out, you don't know yeah, that. It, yes, I, I was. It's funny. Uh, Guyon uh, listened to it and he sent me a bunch of links about. He's like, look, here's. It was some guy back in the early 1900s did this experiment and of like seven dead bodies or something, and only one did it, and he couldn't repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> everything's built on that you know and it's just like you know i meant to bring this up a few times but i i wanted to to get my links and get my data straight for brought up but whatever i, so, I am I what you call an optimistic skeptic i basically am actually quite skeptical about a lot of things but I, <laughs> but I have hope and faith that a lot of things exist so i'm kind of skeptical about life after death but i hope that it exists and well, so, therefore, I, no, I, I will try that, and right? try and find a way for it to to exist, even though I, well, sounds, I think it probably doesn't. Well, it sounds awesome. I'd love it. I mean, I, I don't see any evidence for it, but but you know, it's like one thing you do is um, you always talk to me about best practices. Well, this is the best practice, or this is how people do it, or you got. I'm like, as soon as I start hearing that, I'm just like, ugh, BS. You know. Well, here's an example. One thing I would example is um, what was the. Uh, Somebody wrote a funny, one of our listeners wrote a funny comment, and he says, he said something like, you know, you know, what I heard was Justin had read some, cited some well-researched material from a, uh, well-researched material from a book. From yeah. an ex- you know, and what I heard Jason say is that based on some anecdotal evidence, that wasn't true. <laughs> He's like, that's just what I heard. Right. You know, as if like, and I said, well, here's my, here's, here's my perspective on it. You know, the world is, the world is very complicated because it's filled with people and keep, people are full of exceptions. And um, because of that, coming up with models that can p- completely encompass their behavior, predict their behavior, or predict anything is very difficult. And, um, and so things that are true-ish, that's about as much as you can say. They're not blanket true. There's always tons of, of, of cases where it's not true at all. And so you always have to use your judgment and look at your specific situation because it's just a general rule. It's not a rule in all cases. And the problem is a lot of people say, well, this is the rule. And that means it, as if it, like, it always applies. Well, it doesn't always apply. It applies generally, but it may not apply in your case if you look at your situation and go, well, like we're talking about, I don't want to get into the discussion again, but you're talking about like always release on the weekend. It's like, well, not if a you have, a, you have something that's going to be an awesome you know, uh, uh, submission and it's, and it's, uh, and it's, but, but you know what? I'm pretty sure that I've said what you've just said, like, I don't know, 20 times on the show during the past 147 episodes. I mean, I, I feel the same way. I, I almost think it kind of goes without saying that every rule has an exception. I think that's something that we've kind of discovered in the show, especially about business. I mean, so many times uh, well, I don't we've think been- it has an exception. It has a lot of exceptions. I think most of these rules are true ish. They're okay. like, 70%. I that once again, that's, that, I mean, how many times has it come out of my lips? There is no one truth. Many, many times on this show, right? So I think exactly the same way as you. And I, I sort of think we've got to the point where, ah, you know what, there's not, not even any point saying that anymore. Maybe, maybe for new listeners we need to say that. But it's like, yeah, goes without saying. Yeah. I remember it's funny, a buddy of mine, he was, he, I couldn't ever get him to, um, 
I couldn't ever get him to pin him down on anything. So anytime I'd make a statement to him, he he, he couldn't either. He couldn't just agree. So if I said, yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, girls like flowers. He's like, well, you know, not all girls like flowers. Like, I'm like, dude, seriously, are we really arguing whether girls like flowers? Okay, so I'm sure there are some girls out there who don't like flowers. But are we talking like 98% of them, 99.5, right? You know, I mean, for all for for at least as far as our this discussion is concerned, it's true, right? We can round it up to true. <laughs> it, it was just so annoying. It's like, but I that's the, that's pretty much where where I'm coming from. If I'm if I'm talking about something like that, that's exact. You should listen to what you just said. I'm going to carve out that sound clip. Girls like flowers. I'm, I'm going to play it back to you. <laughs> I know any, there are girls. Anytime that like you come up with that, I'm just going to say, Jason, girls like flowers. Girls <laughs> like flowers. Remember. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. <laughs> Okay, so, um, okay, you ready to move on? I got a couple other good ones. Go on, yeah, go. Rational Home Buying. This is on Less Wrong. Have you okay. um, been to that site, Less Wrong? Nope. So, okay, let me find my, I lost my notes here. Um, this sounds less so, interesting than a lot of the other links that you've shown. Actually, I don't know. Well, let's see. We'll try it out for a minute, okay? <laughs> let's see okay. if it goes anywhere. So, the thing is that, you know, when people are going to buy a house, they often look at the wrong things and determine like whether it's worth money or not. And it's, it's sort of funny. Like, so Sandy likes to watch HGTV, which, which is home and garden TV. And they have all these shows like, you know, uh, house hunters, house hunters, international property virgins. And it's basically some couple or something is looking for a new house and they go and they go look at three houses and they compare and contrast and decide which one they're going to buy. Okay. Right. And, it's funny because they're always going through and they're like, wow, I mean, we can do some great entertaining here, you know, like as if they're like throwing like a party like every weekend. You know, it's like I'm like, seriously, and they're willing to live like 35, 40 minutes further out in the suburbs from their jobs, giving themselves an hour, you know, hour and a half longer commute a day so they can have, a, a you know, a bigger deck or a bigger dining room for entertaining. And it's like, you know, what's going to make you unhappy? driving an hour and a half in traffic every day. That's going to make you unhappy. You know how happy, you know, and you know how often you're going to actually entertain people, and you know how much happiness it's going to give you relative? It's going to be minor, right? It's funny, but it's, it's, it's not just the entertaining of people because, you know, you're talking to someone who, who is that kind of a person, right? And myself and Georgie, we love to have a house where we feel like we can entertain. And we don't really entertain that much. But there's something about... Feeling the, fe- like the, f- the feeling of being a host, you know, I, I, I am a host. <laughs> I want to be a host. Even it's, though you never good, are. <laughs> well, no, it's not like you never are, like you are sometimes, but it's just, it's just nice to have that feeling of potential gregariousness. <laughs> the option to host. <laughs> yeah. Inspirational hosting. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. Well, how often do you guys, I mean, in the last six months, how many times have you had people over for dinner? Well, none because well, actually, even though we're in this flat that we're in now, which is tiny, which is basically one room and a kitchen, <laughs> we've still hosted. We have we we have um, a dining room table, and there's been two nights when we've hosted a, hosted a meal. But in our in our previous place where we had um, a table, uh, like a it was pretty big. You, you remember that house in Glendale? Um, mm-hmm. I guess in the year we were there, we hosted like ten times, mm-hmm. maybe like a little less than once a month. Okay. Is that okay? Does that pass know, wait, the wait, Jason wait. test of scrutiny? 
I don't know. I'm just I'm just wondering. I mean, I because I think a lot of people think of themselves as like hosting these dinner parties when they really don't. And like the example they talk about is like having the pool. Like, oh, we can have all these pool parties, but like, how often are you going to have a pool party? You want to know something? We tried to get you over for dinner about five times during the year we were in the Glendale house, and you didn't come over. No, there was one time. (laughs) It was once, and then we couldn't do it, and it was a it was a communication problem, right? You guys bought food, and because it because it depended on Phil. Right, mm. Remember Phil was in town. We were all going to get together, but it turned out he had something, and I forgot to tell you. And I don't know, because uh, yeah, certain I, certain people don't like to go over to other people's houses. They just like to maybe go into a restaurant or do something locally or that kind of thing. So, no, uh, something I have no problem with it. Um, but I, I don't know. I just, I just, I mean, the the article goes into a lot more issues, but it's just people get really irrational when they talk about things that they can imagine versus things that they can't imagine, and and uh, you know, it's just the one thing is that it's over overcounting certain things and undercounting others. Like things that actually turn out that make people happy is when you have a lot of natural light and when you actually can see like green. Yeah. <laughs> like that actually has measurable there's scientific evidence so people are generally happier when they they have those things. So for instance, people who are in hospital rooms and they look out their window and can see grass and trees, you know, they're actually the average three three day stay for someone who couldn't see those becomes two days for people who can see the green. I Which, think it makes a lot of sense. I mean we we chose that place because of all of the the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. But the truth is, it, it certainly didn't help our pockets. And I don't think we got the level of happiness out of getting into debt <laughs> that we are now. Now we're in this tiny little place and we feel happier that we're getting out of debt. So I, I think there's some truth to this. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to... Um... Sometimes you don't know what's going to make you happy or unhappy until you get yourself into it and you realize how unhappy, like, say, debt made you. Like, for instance, if you've never actually commuted, you might not realize how much a 20-minute longer commute each way is going to do to your general happiness level until you actually do it. Well, you know that you just gave an example of the green trees. In in the last place, the Glendale place, the view was amazing. And in the place before that, we lived in um, uh, Silver Lake, and the view was amazing. And I, my office was there, and I could look out this window at this amazing view. And now we're in this little place and there's no view. I didn't realize just how happy that view made me until I was in this shithole. <laughs> <laughs> so that is definitely another truth. <laughs> yeah, I remember when, um, so I was, when I moved to, um, so f- my buddy Phil and I, we had, our first company was here in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. And we moved back to Chicago for two years in ni- 1998, 19, 99, 98, 99. And it was like night and day in terms of uh, like the feel of being in Chicago versus the feel of being in L.A., especially during the six or seven months of winter. I mean, during the summers, it's you know, generally nice. But in Chicago, Chicago is fantastic during the summers and, you know, from, I guess, from May through September or October. But the rest of the year, it's brutal. And I, it was sort of like it reminded the way I, the difference I describe it is it was like. The TV shows, remember Melrose Place and 90210? Do you remember those mm-hmm. back in the 90s? Yeah. And it's like it was sunny every day and their biggest problems were these like silly little relationship problems. I mean, that was <laughs> the biggest concern they had. It's like, oh no, you didn't invite so-and-so to a party. Oh, you know, that's their <laughs> biggest concern. But it was still beautiful and sunny. So it's like, well, how bad could life get? It's not very. We're in the, whereas like Chicago, especially we were, we were in the Federal Reserve Bank in Chicago and we were looking at the side of a building and it was dark all the time because we had no light. And, and, and since we didn't want fluorescent lights, because the fluorescent lights made you feel like you were in a hospital operating room, which yeah. is a nightmare. 
So what we did is we turned off the lights and we bought three halogen lights that shot off the sides of the walls in, as indirect lighting. And our office looked like the X-Files. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know how the X-Files is always dark and yeah, shadowy yeah. and stuff? That's the way it looked. And so I swear to God, we went from living in the world of like 90210 to the X-Files. Like that was, and you, and you really felt that way. It's like depressing and gloomy and there's dark conspiratorial forces working in the background and we're always fighting with the. I really think it makes a huge difference to your overall health and wealth and happiness, the, the, the environment that you're in. And I, to be honest, I can't wait to get another nice place. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm already done with this place. We've, well, we've been here like three months or something and I'm, I'm so over it. Well, how much longer are you going to have to live there before you guys are, you know, your, your financial situation is, is, is to where you're comfortable enough getting into a more expensive place? I don't know. We've, we've signed a year lease on this place. I mean, not that it'll be a big deal to get out of that, but uh, I would, <laughs> the sooner the better as far as I'm concerned. And that's why I'm working very, very hard to, uh, to bring Plugio's revenue right up there. Yeah, well, it gives you some motivation, right? Yeah. That's another good yeah, thing. I, yeah. So it's like it's like the it's like the piece of sand in the in the what the oyster that creates the pearl. Right? Yeah. Right. I yeah. So I I know for me that's one of the reasons that I had to move out to um to L A or, or Southern California is for the sunshine and it's just it's like always nice out here. It's like when I was in Chicago, it's like I couldn't stop talking about it. Everyone's just like, yeah, yeah, I know you want to move out to California. Yeah, I go, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jason Roberts is to know that he was getting the hell out of Chicago and going back to California. But um, well, speaking of uh, motivation, there's an interesting. Um, there was a video I watched called. Um, it's like the it was RSA Animate Drive: The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, and it was one of the things they said in it, which I found sort of surprising, is that they're talking about you know, motivating people through like financial rewards. So like if you, if you do X, Y, and Z better then we'll give you a bonus or. Is this intrinsic versus extrinsic stuff? Yes, it is. But this is specifically had to do with financial rewards. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that for um, doing things that didn't take a lot of cognitive, like the decision-making process that were sort of like more like menial work or laborious work, the financial incentive did help. It was hmm. a big motivator. But for things that, that were cognitive in nature, um, so for things that were like, that took a lot of intellectual um, uh, effort, um, it, did, it actually had a counter effect. So, so which, like co- coders want to be paid less to code? Well, it just, it's just, it, does, it just doesn't work. Okay. Pay, paying people more doesn't work. And which, which makes it interesting because you, th- you think about, you know, how why all the CEOs of all these companies just make these out of these fortune 500 companies make these outrageous salaries, like, you know, $20 million and they make these huge bonuses, like especially like Goldman Sachs and, and these big banks, they have these just, just outrageously high compensations because it actually doesn't affect their performance. It's right? funny that you should say that because my friend, um, let me just follow my, my friend, uh, Neil uh, tweeted a statistic about how 20 years ago, the average chief, chief executive of FTSE 100 company earned 17 times more than the average employee. But today, they earn 70 times more than the average employee. Yeah, it's totally out of control. It's completely out of control. I mean, it has nothing to do with reality. It has nothing to do with like what's motivating. They say, oh, well, that's where the market is. We want to get the best people. We want to make sure they're motivated or they're they're they're. Um, interests are aligned with a company or the shareholders, which is total BS. I mean, it's all self-serving crap. And as an investor, 
the investors, which means all these mutual funds and pension funds, should be outraged that these CEOs and these bankers are pocketing all of this compensation that should be going to the shareholders. Yeah, and it's a lot. I mean, when, when you're talking those kind of figures, I mean, it, that is a massive amount. Yeah, they're just second. Like these banks in particular. I mean, I, they, I, I, I was reading some stuff on that too. It's just, just, just. I mean, talk about, uh, talk about corruption. I mean, just the, just the level of of money that they suck out of the economy and they suck out of even they suck out of their shareholders. It's just, it's. I don't know. Um, one thing was is why this the UK startup scene is doomed. Did you oh, see this, that one? Yeah, I, I saw that one, and that's awesome. Actually, myself and Georgie were having a discussion about that, and we think that that there's. Uh, we'll go, go over the main premise of the article, and then we'll. Well, we'll... I mean, the basic the guy is basically just talking about how he was trying to launch a you know a um, uh, an app or some kind of website, and he needed to set up a merchant account so he could process payments. And I can't remember why he 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 couldn't use PayPal or didn't want to use PayPal, but you know, it was all he just, just didn't about... want to. It was just his personal choice. Oh, was that so? Yeah, yeah. and and it turned out that. He tried, um, what was it, there was a Barclays first because, but then they lost his paperwork and they couldn't seem to get it together. And so finally went over to Lloyd's of London, which I think he said his dad had an account there. And so we thought maybe that could help get things, move things along. But it turned out that they were going to require an $81,000 deposit just to even set up a merchant account. Yeah. $81,000. I mean, in England, it's just, it, it is correct. Well, I mean, the thing about his article, what was so stupid was, look, Dude, you can do that with PayPal. So this whole article's pointless. <laughs> like you right. could have just got set up with PayPal straight away. But the, the the kind of point that he he was making was that it was just difficult and slow to do stuff in England, like wading through molasses. But it goes right down to the kind of the fabric of service. The service culture is so bad over there. Like when you when you try and buy from someone, it's like they've you know in America how service culture is like very nice and they're like welcome to the shop sir you know thanks right. a lot for coming in and all this kind of stuff in england it's almost like you owe them something <laughs> and they're kind of pissed off with you for being their customer and for it you know for ruining their day that they now have to deal with someone well, isn't like, that what they accuse like france of and like you know like that's what that, that things are like it you know when you go to france and they're just sort of like or maybe it's just how they they're they are to americans <laughs> i don't know I, I don't know about that but but when when georgie was like applying for college in england she came over to college yeah so she was working with the, and this is a classic example. She was working with the admissions office over there. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, to get the paperwork, to deal with the staff, to talk to them, like they were always incredibly grumpy. They're always, you know, made it really difficult. They wouldn't use email. Everything had to be by fax. Like they're basically like in the dark ages and they made it really difficult. And she, she let me overhear a conversation with her, with the, with the counterpart in America. It was right. unbelievable. Like the, this, the, the woman in America was like, oh, hi, how are you doing, Georgie? Oh, I hope you're having a nice day. Oh, sure, no problem. I'll send you those papers. Oh, absolutely. And then they'll like call back and chase it up and all that kind of stuff. So the thing is, they don't really do themselves any favors in England from a service culture point of view. So it it, it just, I, I mean, honestly, I think I could have never done what I did with Plugio and basically broken free and become an entrepreneur if I hadn't moved away from England and moved over to America. Well, okay. Well, you're you're only talking about one issue, which is that the service people service is bad. People are yeah. rude. They're 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 slow to respond. I guess. Uh, but yeah. There's the bureaucracy. He's talking about the bureaucracy or kind of the inefficiencies, and you're talking about what? Like, there's also there's sort of like this, uh, the psychological aspect of it that you. Just it's a fractal. Everything's the same. Like basically the begrudgery as well. Like when you when you kind of say, "Oh, I've got this idea for a startup," the first 
thing that that people in my experience anyway the first thing that people will say in general in the uk is no that that won't work that's not going to work you know <laughs> they'll, they'll basically come up with the reasons why it won't work when in america you say it and they're gonna they're like oh yeah great idea man way to go you could totally do that let's think about how you can make that better you know right, just, right, right let's think like here's some potential challenges we'll see how we can work around them it's just that's just not gonna work and here's why I, I don't know. I mean, I'm probably going to get seriously flamed from some UK listeners, and I hope I don't. But I, 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 my feeling was, it, you know, you walk into a bank and try to get a loan. You talk to people about being an entrepreneur. It just, it just doesn't have the same feeling as in America, where everyone is just totally up for it. You know, if you have a failure in the UK, it's like we're not talking to you again. If you have a failure in America, it's like yeah, we want to talk to you twice as much. Yeah, it's like you actually tried something. Yeah. yeah. So you're actually serious about doing something. I, well, I think California is even more like that. So like if you look at – America may seem like that to, from, the, from, from the perspective of coming from England, but then California is like that compared to the rest of America, which is like it's very open and people are trying all kind of random stuff. I mean it was funny because you know, when I was in Chicago, I felt constrained like that. Like everyone was – you had to be kind of with the program, right? I mean winter is coming get with the program. It's going to be freezing soon. So you better have a job and you better make money and you better have an apartment or something. You know, it's just like just knowing that it was going to be negative 20 degrees in about two months made you get real serious and get kind of in within the system. Whereas I felt like when you're in California and it's like, it's going to be 60 degrees at the worst case. It's like, what's the problem, right? You sleep on your buddy's couch. I mean, it's sunny. Everybody's like, there's just not a lot of downside. And I always felt like, Everybody's just doing random stuff. People are writing books or trying to be actors or screenplays or people starting a religion or starting a company. I mean, it's like, whatever, man. You know, what are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm starting a new religion. It's like, cool, go for it. <laughs> you know, it's just like, because everybody's doing all this random stuff, it's like, there's no pressure on you to get with the program. Well, um, so that's interesting. But, you know, the, the kind of a related thing I was, I was listening to, um, I think it was on uh, NPR uh, Money marketplace money or something which mm -hmm. is a great podcast by the way um there's marketplace which is like a daily roundup of the you know what's going on in the in the in, in the economy and things but there's the money at which is like a 20 minute you know show every day where they do you know a story on something and one of them was talking about like what's going to happen with europe right because of all these greece italy spain portugal and ireland all being in big big financial trouble having mm. massive debts and they're talking about Ireland is has actually their economy has shrunk by 20%. It's not that it didn't grow, it shrunk by 20%. And I was like, "In Justin, you want to go back there?" <laughs> I mean, it sounds like Well, they're going to have to I mean, are they going to have to put isn't that mean that the cost of living is going to go down or are they going to I mean, what how do they how does an economy react? I mean, it sounds like a ma I mean, that's a massive recession. I mean, that sounds like depression level like uh, you know, situation. I mean, I don't think it means people standing in bread lines, that kind of thing, but it just sounds really rough. I mean, I don't know what that would mean for you if your if your business is running in America and most of your clients are in America and maybe you're making your income from America from contract work, but I, I don't know, man. Well, we're, we're not moving to our and that's that that idea is not happening yeah, anymore. Why? Because we we're, we're going there for a month. Like I think I said this to you the last time we spoke. <laughs> we're going there for a month uh, for holiday for vacation, but we're not moving there to live. Well, the last time I talked, well, as far as I knew, you were going to go there for a month, but then you were planning on maybe staying there for six months or a year or something. No, that's not happening. Well, you guys change ideas a lot, right? We do. We do. We're very we're very open. We're like we're we're searching. But I told I told you um, the one thing that I didn't did I tell you about the Napa thing. The Napa thing? Oh, I haven't told you. But okay, this is it. This okay, is the so this one. is the idea of the month. This no, this I think this is the one that's going to stick. And it, uh -huh. like you know, everyone like everyone needs a dream. 
Okay, this is this is our dream. Everyone's got a dream. What's your dream? To buy a vineyard in Napa. All right. Okay. I I, I I'm fading this one already. I'm already. Why? Any takers on uh, TZ want to take the other side of this? <laughs> I'm betting against it right now. Are you you're <laughs> actually betting against it. Why would you do betting. that? Because I just don't. That just sounds great. You buying a vineyard? What are you going to buy a vineyard for? What do you know about? What are you going to make wine? Well, you know something. If you, to own a vineyard. Firstly, you don't need to make wine. You can just actually grow grapes and sell the grapes. And if you own a vineyard, the, it, once it's over a certain acreage, this see, I've done some research about it, the land and the, the grapes that you grow can actually cover the cost of the mortgage. Talk about a great investment. And then you live in this beautiful place with rolling hills and rolling valleys. Sounds like a good investment. It sounds like one of those things that sound really good when you do a superficial analysis, but people who really understand it incorporate all the actual costs that you're going to have to incur. Uh, it probably doesn't turn out because I think, you know, we live in a relatively efficient market, so things aren't completely going to be obviously underpriced like that. I mean, our, our, our dream is to, it has always been about, you know, living in somewhere beautiful and kind of making a beautiful home. Yeah, and, like, um, that's everybody's dream, right? But no, but I mean, we, we have specifically loved the idea of living in Italy or France. Um, but the problem with the problem with that is, I mean, and, you know, we watch loads of movies about that kind of thing. Like, for example, A Good Year. I'm, I'm sure you haven't seen that movie, A Good Year. But we love that movie. That's one of our favorite movies. We watch it again and again. Mm -hmm. And it's um, where Russell Crowe, um, he's like a, a stock trader in the UK. Mm -hmm. And then his his uncle dies and he inherits this uh, chateau in France and he goes over there. He just goes over there for a day, but ends up staying there and ends up spending the rest of his life there. And uh, it's just how beautiful that kind of lifestyle and environment is. And we absolutely love it. And um, it's sort of what we've tried. We will always try to create. But the problem is, is we're not in France or Italy. But we've just we just kind of started looking at some of this Napa stuff and see that it really does fall into line with that. So You know what I think you should do? Go on. I'm going to give you my own solicited advice. I think you should make... Just focus on making money over the next couple of years. Stay in L.A. or just stay... Live somewhere... That's not gonna take up a lot of time and energy. Don't buy a don't buy a farm. Don't buy a country home. Just live somewhere reasonable that you can focus on building up a business, whether it's any food, pluggy or whatever, making money. In two or three or four years from now, when you're making bank, then you can go buy a home or a summer home in Italy or France or Napa or wherever. You hey, you never asked me my timeline. Like we had we we even now don't What's have your any. We don't have any intention of doing that until we're loaded. That's so it's not something that oh, would well, happen. That's, for that's, that's, okay, well that doesn't count. So I mean, like, I, when I'm loaded, I mean, you know, when you're loaded, all bets are off. I said it was a dream. I started the whole conversation with "this is our dream," right? Okay. Our dream is to get a place in Napa. So obviously, that's in like two or three years' time. What happened to the dream to move to Savannah, Georgia? That was a dream about six months ago. The reason is, is because we keep on looking at all these different places, and then we find the downsides to them, right? So the downside to Savannah is the weather. Okay. What's the, the upside is it's absolutely beautiful. It's it's got the right kind of look and feel, but it just doesn't functionally work because of the weather. Whereas Napa has the beautiful look and feel. It's near San Francisco. It has fantastic weather. It's got vineyards, which I personally love. I love wine and I love that kind of thing. Even though and, you're not supposed to drink it anymore, right? Well, you can drink grape juice. Kids, <laughs> <laughs> diabetics are not supposed to be drinking a lot of wine. I won't be a diabetic because I'll only be eating vegetables and juice. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Let's moving on. <laughs> so do you, do you read that Paul Graham's The Patent Pledge? 
I, 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 no, I didn't. But I, I'm, this show needs to come to an end. It will come to an end eventually. Let's just come more things. Okay, this you, is the last one. No, no, I got a couple small ones. Oh. So the patent pledge, he basically says that um, the his idea, of, I guess his, I don't know, proposal is that what we we're all just going to agree that we're not going to use patents like all all these startups. So all these little startups are not going to sue each other and not going to use it, and that'll somehow make the guys who are patent trolls look bad or feel bad and i was like yeah it was so i thought it was so funny because it was like i don't think people really worried too much about you know a y combinator startup filing a patent and suing you people are worried about intellectual ventures in one of their 1300 shell companies um or no that one of the 1300 companies they're own you know owned by their shell company right Mm -hmm. these non-practicing entities you know that go suing people those type of things. So it's kind of like, it's sort of like spitting in the wind. Like, I don't really see, okay, fine. We have all, all the people who, who were up in uh, Silicon Valley and are funded by, you know, people up there. We're not going to sue each other. But that's not a problem because those people are already in a situation where who they are and how they do business is evaluated by the community up there, right? So if you act like a jerk, you may have a hard time getting funded or getting you know, co-founders and stuff like that. I agree. I agree. That that doesn't make any. I mean, it makes on the surface it makes sense, but it doesn't seem like a um, a long-lasting solution to a much deeper problem. So you know, it has it's to be not, the not worth considering. It has to be the Innovation Freedom Foundation. I'm telling you, it's our ACLU. Well, version. we're waiting for your blog post. You said you were going to put it out. Yeah, I know. I am. One of these days, <laughs> as soon as I get some more time, which be about probably about the time you buy your vineyard. <laughs> All right. So go on. Move on next. All righty, the next one. Well, we got to talk a little bit about Bid on My Day by, uh, was it uh, Dan? Oh, Dan Philippe. Felipe. Felipe. That, yeah. yeah, go on. That, that, so that, that was cool. He created a little app called Bid on My Day. Why don't you talk about it? You know more about it than I do. Well, um, he, he posted up on Startup Guild and said it's like a little bit like AnyFu, but uh, I can sort of see where he's coming from, but it's not very much like AnyFu. But basically, he, for whatever reason, he has a whole bunch of air miles so he can get free air travel very easily for a month so what he said is he set up a website called bid on my day and you can basically bid to get dan to come to your house to where you live wherever you are in america and he'll do stuff for you and he's he's basically filming each each time he goes and does something for someone he's going to film it and then put that up on the website i think it's going to grow a grow a bit of press i think it's a great idea make a documentary out of it yeah he could make a good documentary out of it yeah i think it's bid a great on little my idea day. Yeah, yeah. So Dan, Dan is a uh, longtime TZ listener, and he's also on Startup Guild. So that's yeah. why I thought great. we had to talk about it. Yeah, well, well thought. That was a great little idea. And obviously, um, not just us thinks it's a good idea. I mean, it did it did get uh, like 120 points on Hacker News, and a lot of comments on Hacker News. So I think that's great. Well done. Mm. So um, going mobile first. There was this article I think about a week ago, and and on Forest, um, and they were talking about how. And the guy basically is saying that you should build your mobile app first as opposed to the web app because, you know, assuming that the, there's a web and mobile play there, be, because the mobile, more people are accessing the web through mobile devices than they are through the, the, the standard, com, you know, browser interface on a computer. And um, I guess also because maybe the, whatever is presented through the mobile version is going to be the, the guts of the application, the simplest part of it. And it, focus, it, it, it forces you to focus on the, on the very basic. Stuff. Yeah, that's what myself and Sebastian always said about Skyboard if we ever built it. 
So I, I, yeah, okay. And it's funny. And Luke Rabluski, who we've had on and talked about, um, is I guess they mentioned him as being a big proponent of this. I don't know. I mean, here's my thing with that: is that the problem with them building the mobile first is that nobody pays for these mobile apps, right? It's like so you go and build this app, and then it doesn't it doesn't show up on the top ten list, and nobody pays for it because you're in this world of like of free so nobody pays it were you know so you can't monetize it so then what's i mean what are you really getting out of it well for for a start nobody pays for it I, i'll take exception to that because i mean uh there's a lot of apps that do make money that are mobile but yeah they, but the but the very small percentage of they've talked a lot about them there's a t- been a ton of I mean, we've talked about that too all the studies have been done it depends about, on like, what your whole model is i mean is your pricing model subscriptions or is it selling the i mean like you, like it really does depend on what the what you're making. Yeah, I mean, but but the 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 stuff that there's been a number of articles that we that we were talked about on the show where they did studies on the actual number of people that are making real money on it is very small. Like this is gold rush, um, you know, there or at least there was for a while. I guess they're still going on for the the iPhone app store and Android's you know app store, and and it's the reality is that very few people make any significant amount of money on it, which therefore leads me to think like, well. Why do you want your leading, um, you know, at the leading part of your business to be just sort of a, a non-money generating issue that in itself is going to have a hard time gaining in a momentum because there's just hundreds of thousands of apps out there? Okay, okay. Let's, let's look at our two businesses as a, a case study for this. So if we released AnyFoo as a mobile app and if we released Plugio as a mobile app first, it wouldn't actually make any difference because both of those businesses don't get money because of the app or because of the website. They get money because of the service the app and the website offer. Okay. That's, so that, that, I mean, there's two cases in point where this thesis could work. So if you're not making any money from the app, but it's going to drive business to your app that you're then going to monetize second, secondarily? Well, it's, yeah, but I mean, that, that's sort of what, you know, when I heard about the article, I thought that's what it meant. It just meant it was just talking about the thesis of the way that you kind of release it first but it wasn't really talking about building apps for building apps sake it was just saying okay rather than build your website rather than us build any foo in it was a website first we build any foo as a mobile app first and then we build it as a website right of course for any foo it doesn't make any sense because you need you know video and screen sharing to get anything done so well but you don't do video and screen sharing through any foo like any foo is just a marketplace yeah, but you're ultimately going to have to. Well, I mean, uh, well, I guess so. And with, I'm not with, sure you know, the, with Plugio, it's just it's just basically scheduling tweets and etc. You know, all the stuff that Plugio does, which could be just as useful via mobile as it is via the desktop, via the web. Right, right, right. So I think that's what they meant. That would be my impression. All right, fair enough. Next. <laughs> <laughs> all right, go on. Is it, this John, is the last one, right? Maybe. How John <laughs> McAfee lost ninety percent of his. 96% of his wealth. You know, uh, you know McAfee? Yeah, McAfee software, stuff? yeah. He lost 96% of his wealth in, like, the crash of 2008. Oh, my God. Can you imagine that? I guess he's down to, like, I guess he went from, like, $100 million down to, like, a couple million dollars or something. Cheapest. And he just had, like, a fire sale. He had, like, four or five homes, and he had this huge ranch where he had all these, like, you know, I don't know, like, aircraft and stuff. Like, he flew planes and these ultralights and different things and uh, basically sold everything for a song, just... The auctioneers came out and sold everything. Wow. 
And he was like basically saying that he felt better because it took a lot of pressure off him. Like he had no responsibility. He had enough to live on, but you know, there was no like estate to manage or whatever. Yeah. But I just thought it's like, it's how easy it is to lose your wealth. Like, you know, just there's making it and there's keeping it. But I think what happens is to so many people is they make money and then they want to invest it wisely. Right. Meaning that they want to like buy real estate or buy restaurants or buy, you know, they put in all these different things that they don't understand without realizing how risky all that stuff is. You know, stock market. I mean, that stuff's risky. You can lose, lose it all. Isn't there a saying like that, you know, it's easy to make a million, but it's hard to keep it. I don't know, but I like it. <laughs> so I have a friend of mine. I won't bring up his name. He he's a listener and knows who I knows I'm talking about. But you know, he he made a fair chunk of change, and he's like almost all in cash. <laughs> he's like totally conservative, and it's hilarious. But I think in some ways he's like done. It's been well. It served him well, right? Because he yeah. can sleep at night. You know, he's not trying to get this huge return on it, but he's not going to lose his money. Right? I don't know. I'd be scared of cash because what happens if the dollar devalues all of a sudden, right? You don't you, like then you're completely tied to dollar value. So with with a, with a massive massive inflation, you know, and you never know if that could happen or not. You'd be screwed. Yeah, and true. By the way, I mean not just cash. I mean it's like CDs and stuff like that. But you know, short term uh, things like that. But um, I think the. I think what I would do, I mean, if, if, if you, can, you can buy like these tips, which is like these uh, inflation hedged um, bonds so that you're, you will, you, you, if, the, if, if there is a certain amount of inflation, you won't lose money you won't, the, the, if you won't lose buying power. Hmm. Okay. So you can invest in tips. I, I think that's, that's what they're called. Um, so that's not a bad, that's, that's one thing you can do as a hedge. One other thing you could do is, um, I think, I remember reading this sometime, like, is, is, you, is you put 90% of your wealth in very conservative investments. So I say conservative investments, I mean like, you know, like bonds or something like that. And you did 10% in the riskier stuff, like, this, you know, different stocks or things that you understand and, and think you can get really good return on. So, so we, know, we call that investment tithing. <laughs> investment tithing. That's a good idea. Investment tithing. Yeah, I go for that. So let's see, last one or two here. Um, We're about to hit the two hour mark. Well, there's this one that we're supposed to talk about called Decrease Churn, Increase Conversions, or Hire a Sales Team. You talk about this one because you told me to, talk, to read it. I, just, I was just posting a link as a possible discussion point. That's you, just that you're, you're link triage. You don't read anything. You just post and repost. I thought it was interesting. I did read it, um, and it, it was, certainly wasn't a very long blog post. It was just a guy who had a chart that basically spoke about the different, the different things, and he ultimately found that the best thing to do was to increase conversion of the website. So basically he was saying increasing, increasing conversion made the biggest, fastest change to income. But like that... 1% had the biggest effect on cash balance. Right. But hiring a sales team uh, created the best effect for long-term growth. And that was really the guts of it. And it was, just, it was just interesting. That was all. Good thing you could read that like right as you were talking. I didn't read it as I was talking. <laughs> that, that was straight from memory. I totally read it before I said it to you. You're like the guy who like never did his homework in class, I'll bet, right? Like teacher <laughs> came in and you like never did your reading, did you? <laughs> you're, you're, you're I know always you're down on me about this, but I'm, I tell you what, I'm, I'm totally up to date on this. <laughs> How do you never do your homework? <laughs> God. <laughs> just, yikes. And you not only do not do your reading, you don't even have a calendar. You don't know when anything's supposed to happen I when are you going to get a calendar guilty as charged about that um Ooh, don't you use gmail right i yeah gmail is my main calendar but i also well, why do, don't you use the calendar well, no, you know, what i typically do is um i'll either use nosby which kind of 
brings it up to the top of the list on the right time. So that's my main calendar. Or alternatively, my backup calendar, which is not really that great, is my big ass text file. I'll typically your put backup something- calendar is me. Yeah, I'm your backup calendar. <laughs> what? what? Hey, hey, Justin, T minus twenty minutes. We got an interview. I, I'm sensing some some frustration and hostility coming from you. Yeah, like, what, what's, the you what's the deal? What's the deal? Like it stresses me out because I'm just like I know I forgot. Damn it! I know he doesn't know this is coming. So I'm sitting there watching Skype to see if you come online. I'm just like I, you know, see if you remember. I'm like, well, yeah. you know, you know what. I'm the catfish. Like, like I'm the catfish to... that keeps you that keeps you agile. Yeah, well, it just it's like <laughs> it stresses me out because I'm like, should I remind him? I don't want to have to be reminded. It's like I'm an enabler. I'm an enabler. When I okay. say I'll remind you, I'm an enabler. That that catfish analogy comes from a movie that we watched on Netflix that was interesting called Catfish. And basically, the analogy is this: is that um, when they were shipping cod uh, during the war, they were shipping them kind of alive in the tank. But by the time they got to the soldiers, they the flesh, you know, was not that great. Um, even though they, even though they were alive, they just hadn't really exercised or whatever. So that what they did was they used to put a catfish in the barrel with the cod, and the catfish would basically keep nipping them. So then all the cod would kind of keep active. And uh, I'm the catfish here, keeping you active, keeping you on your toes. Right. Okay. <laughs> hey, <my back. laughs> Whatever. Get a damn calendar. <laughs> All right, last topic. Oh, please, God. All right, I will. No, no more last topic. Well, no, go on, go on. Last topic, go on. Uh, trying to decide one I want. I got like three of them here. I pick. Do you want to do you go positive or do you want to go dark? Let's go positive. Let's end the show on a positive note. Although it already is on a positive. Here note. it is. Enthusiasm goes a long way over email. <laughs> <laughs> From gettingmoreawesome.com. <laughs> Basically, the guy said, "I mean this." true i mean it's like basically saying look you know when he would get emails from from customers that were really positive and upbeat and friendly he was much more willing to help them out like he it put him in a kind of right frame of mind where he was trying to solve them. and even when you know the their his clients were being fr- it was obvious they were frustrated that you know they tried six or seven different things a lot of back and forth and they'll say they would still say positive and say hey i know this is a kind of a frustration but could you try this and and he was just he was talking about like how how much of an effect that had on his business. That he used to think like putting smiley faces and different things like that in his uh, emoticons were kind of stupid and the kind of thing like a little girl would do. But then he realized that if you don't do that stuff, mo- oftentimes your your emails will read very dry. And that's why I always put a smiley face in an email. Every email. I- I think you like should bookend them. You should start and end every sentence with a smiley face, like a, like <laughs> <laughs> almost like like HTML brackets. <laughs> Do you think? I think. I mean, like it seems. You know, Georgie was looking at an email that I sent to a customer, and she she was like looking over my shoulder. And she was like, "That's just." unprofessional <laughs> i know you do do a lot of you go no i mean i i i usually put at least one in it if i'm but it just it's left. just like the it's it's like the social lubricant it just keeps everything happy it just makes customer service easier it just makes everything better yeah i remember the one time you tried that on me you're like what was this i go I was up at like three in the morning on a trip. I was jet lagged. And you're like, you got to put up the landing page for any foo, you know? And so I stayed up like two or three hours in the middle of the night and I put up and I put up the any foo landing page and I email you and I go, Hey, Justin, could you please get an any foo, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Twitter account. 
right? Register any food Twitter. I'm going to sleep. And, uh, and you go, it's already taken. Cheers. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to effing kill you. <laughs> I just spent four hours in the middle of the night for this thing. You know, you're just like, cheers. Like, well, that's, that's, that's different because basically I'm, I wasn't matching your level of effort. Like my, the level of effort that I was prepared to do at that point was zero, whereas you'd put in like a hundred percent level of effort. And oh, I, cheer- I didn't quite see it like that at the time. I didn't understand that that's Cheers what you were coming back with. just about put me over the top. I'm going to fly back there and kill him right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get, not, not like, hey man, let's take in. And here are two others that look all right. I don't know. Do you want one? Maybe it's not a big deal. We should look at it. It was just like, cheers. <laughs> I hope you're feeling better. Like, I feel like you're getting a lot, of, a lot of frustration out of your system on this show. I hope you're feeling a lot better about our relationship now. I, I got some more. I got some more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I got one more from Getting More Awesome. All right, we're gonna really, We're going to really end this on a positive note. Okay. The number one way to get a reply back, follow-ups. So, actually, uh, that's kind of an interesting thing, which is, you know, the importance of actually, you know, if you send an email and actually trying to send, like, you don't send one the next day, but, you know, you said, I guess there was some, like, um, I'll put the link up to it. There was, there's, there's some sort of service where you can... You can always CC this email address, and it will remind you in the same thread in Gmail to send a follow-up based mm-hmm. on this email. So that was kind of a cool idea. Um, but the, the sort of how, how, how much more likely it is that you're going to get the response that you want by sending a follow-up email. Mm-hmm. Now, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you got, good. You got nothing. It's good. <laughs> it's good. Send follow-up. Helps. All right, I guess that's it from getting more awesome. They got nothing else for us. We done? Cool. We we're, we're done. It's been a great show. Um thanks so much. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs> that's a pretty good show, I think. What do you yeah. think? Good, good. Yeah. Nice. Recording it. <laughs> oh, oh shit! I forgot to press record. Yeah. Oh, then I really would kill you. <laughs> I want to effing kill you. <laughs>